You are listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. The Bondzilla Podcast is an ongoing analysis of two of cinema's longest-running franchises, James Bond and Godzilla. This week we're doing something a little bit different by taking a look at a movie that never actually got made. It's the unproduced 1994 American version of Godzilla. James Bond. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Bondzilla podcast. We're ready to get through another uh, fun and going to be a very interesting, a little bit different of an episode. Yes. I'm Nick. I'm Will. And, and uh, today we are back on uh, you know regular kind of schedule, kind yep. of going back to the Godzilla <laughs> side of things. And we... Uh, from, are... from the <clears throat> from the safety of our quarantine. Yes, yes. And... Um, <laughs> We are going to be talking about a movie that doesn't technically exist, uh, so it's going to be very, very interesting to kind of, uh, kind of get through this. It, it, it was funny because we had mentioned this on the previous episode that with everything going on, like one of the 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 um, one of the great things that. I think that, you know, content creators can do is keep on, you know, creating content from the safety of their studios, homes, what what have you. And, uh, you know, bringing bringing some joy uh, to your to your lives as you kind of uh, sit idly by. And that's why, uh, you know, we did take our last episode to just kind of like give a little like, you know, breather about what's what's been going on. But uh, partially what it was is to do our due diligence and to really sit with the prep for this episode and just to really kind of like percolate and let it let it sit with us because th- this one i'm i'm very excited to bring you and i'm 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 almost uh um I, I just think especially if you're fans of the show i think this one will be a real treat it was a real treat to delve into myself and mm-hmm. uh I, and i always like kind of bringing the audience something a, a little bit unique so uh I, I'm glad that we can offer this very, very fascinating, interesting episode during these trying times, and I hope everybody enjoys it as much as yeah. uh, I believe that we enjoyed uh, like delving into it a yes, little bit. Yes, indeed. Um, so uh, this this week, Nick, yes, uh, we are talking about the legendary, not you know legendaries monsterverse right like godzilla but no. we are talking about what i honestly i i would kind of call a legendary godzilla film mm-hmm. at this point and because i mean diving into this a and true the, myth a, a legend in terms the, of the history of the this. more i went into this like i'm shocked that this was not in my memory of like some of the great like untold like movies like right. you know they, like to me this is like the the Superman Lives, of uh, which is a famous like like a uh, famous per- movie that like didn't get made. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's documentary about it. Kevin Smith's talked about it in an incredible inter- interview. Yep. One of the best. One uh, of the best like videos on mm-hmm. YouTube. Uh, but that's like a that's like a great legend. documentary too. Yeah. Uh, that and you and it's check like because it's like you hear it about it like a lot of like you know you hear Superman Lives you hear about a couple of like the Batman projects that didn't get made. We are talking about the unmade. Godzilla script from 1994 mm-hmm. ultimately would have been titled by or been have been titled Godzilla um 
uh, and uh, yeah, uh, which there was no director. Right. It was never made. Right. That's, that's the thing where it's like when we talk about a lot of the potential like directors or or things about the movie or even like cast, which we'll, we'll get into later or like our casting or any potential news of like what casting could have been. It's all speculative. It's all things that like maybe deals were on the table, maybe deals were signed. But again, because the movie wasn't made, we can't talk about it yeah. specifically. We do have we the can, script. Yeah, we can. Oh, yeah, that's a big thing. We do have the script well, they were, and, written by uh, Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio. Yes. And, uh, you Elliot, know, Elliot and Rossio. And uh, for conversation purposes, we will say the director was Jan DeBont because he yeah. was ultimately the director attached to this version of Godzilla. Yeah. Um, all right, so um, before we get started, I do want to point uh, our audience to this website. Uh, Sci-Fi Japan um, has an amazing breakdown mm-hmm. of the entire production of this film. Like, you know, bar, like, you know, short of an actual documentary, go on to Sci-Fi Japan and look up the un- Godzilla Unmade, uh, the history of the Jan DeBont uh, unproduced TriStar film. It's... You'll it's be able a, to it's find a mouthful, it. but you'll you'll be able to find it. Um, it, it. Even if you look up the unmade 1994 uh, Godzilla film, this is uh, the website that shows up. I urge everybody to like you know we everything we talk about on this podcast will only be like scratching the surface of what this website uh, touches upon. This website not only goes through an entire detailed history about the production of the uh, mm-hmm. of the of the uh, movie, but also uh, interviews uh, from um, special effects artists, storyboard artists, uh, Elliot and Rocio themselves, Jan DeBont uh, himself, um, uh, everybody. I mean, it, it's just a complete detailed work that goes through all and including artwork and in pictures everything and uh even it gets into a lot of like the studio history uh that had led up to you know some of the de- ultimate decisions being made during this production uh so i i really urge everybody that if uh, as a companion piece to this episode check out sci-fi japan.com uh, godzilla unmade uh the history of jan de bont's uh unproduced tristar film Mm-hmm. It's like a four-part uh, uh, kind of like little uh, web web page. Uh, so check that out. So anyway, so getting to our accounts uh, uh, of the film, a um, couple quotes to keep in mind as we head in to the production of this film. Mm-hmm. Are you ready, Nick? I'm ready. For 10 years, I pressured Toho to make one in America. Finally, they agreed. Uh, Henry Saperstein. He was like, Godzilla, the fire-breathing monster, yes, says producer Carrie Woods of the Godzilla 1994 script. So one of the things going into this movie that um, I we're not going to retouch on a lot of like what happened uh, because a lot of this we actually touched upon in the um, 98 Godzilla yeah, film Yeah, and podcast. so like because that name was very – so if you want like a – if you – the 98 Godzilla would actually be a good primer to mm-hmm. like – re-listen to not just because of the production of that movie is so tied into the production of this movie but also comparing what we eventually got in 98 with what this script is i think would be very helpful and kind of really even getting to our thoughts mm-hmm. yeah. on, on it so uh the just to kind of like give like a brief history lesson of what's going on uh we have henry saperstein 
um, who was an American producer who had his foot into a lot of uh, Japanese and American co-productions uh, with uh, the Godzilla films. Uh, and if we remember, he was somebody who always yearned uh, for Godzilla to make his way to the American silver screen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he had uh, many meetings with many people to try to make it happen. It never really happened. But, uh, you know, he maintained good ties with, like, Toho for a long time. And uh, it, it was just always kind of like a, a dream of his. Uh, so in come producers Carrie Woods and Robert Freed uh, from um, uh, from Tri. Well, they weren't from TriStar, I believe, at the time. It was just like they were just from Sony, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, so they come along, and uh, if we remember the story with uh, Henry Saperstein, uh, is that they initially, uh, they meaning Woods, Freed, and Saperstein, were having a meeting regarding the rights to Mr. Magoo. Uh, because Mr. Magoo was like the big, um, uh, if, I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, UWA was the yeah. Pr- yeah the production company that no, was no, no. UPA well, U- UPA yeah UPA is the animation studio yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Comes from, yeah you're right yeah sorry um and uh so they were meeting for and that the- movie does eventually get made yes with, with Leslie Nielsen as Mr. Magoo so they were talking about initially the rights about like you know what would it take uh to make that movie and it was just kind of like your standard Hollywood meeting but uh Woods and especially Freed were more interested, and they knew that Saperstein had his connections and the and the rights to some degree about Godzilla. Yeah, uh, Freed was definitely the person who's like, oh, you know, hey, uh, by the way, Mister Saperstein, uh, you still you still got a little bit of that Godzilla stuff uh, going on. You still interested in uh, making that happen? Godzilla, yeah, that fire breathing monster. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think you you must be thinking about Gigantus, the fire monster. <laughs> Um, so, um, uh, Henry Saperstein, Woods and Freed had, uh, struck up a deal to try to get this movie made in, yep. in the States and, uh, many meetings were made, but unfortunately everybody in the production company of Sony was like, why would you make a movie about Godzilla? Like the corny, like man in a right. suit monster Because again, film? if we go back to our history, we talked about how the American release of Godzilla vs. Megalon really cemented Godzilla as these silly movies of people fighting in suits. And then, you know, it kind of looked like, you know, people kind of knew of the original, but kind of what the series had become, people were more familiar with. And then there was also the failure to gain traction for the Hasey films in America as well, especially more specifically with uh, 1984. Yeah, 1984. Uh, where there was this, there, you know, there was dead the, in the water. The, the initial idea was like this big worldwide push and, 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 you know, this big kind of coming out of like, here's Godzilla again. And then that movie did not do really that well in Japan or America. Like, no. did not, did not hit. So, again, Biolante like, like, was uh, relegated to a home release at that point. And mm-hmm. so, like, there was just no, um, and, and it's going to be a running theme right. throughout this podcast. Yeah. Is it's that like if someone zero went up faith to to a to a studio today and they're like, "Why do you want to make a Pirates of Dark Water movie? Like nobody <laughs> even remembers what that is." <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so um, they were they were having uh, no luck getting anybody to budge on, right. on this film, yeah. and in a bold attempt. Uh, uh, they actually went above the bosses, right, 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 and yeah, went to Sir Peter Gru- uh, Goober, uh, who, uh, and 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 this was considered like a a really big gamble. Like mm-hmm. it's like you don't go beyond. And I can tell you, as somebody who works in just like a field of you know film production, it's just 
you, you don't go, you can only go up but so high without you like really stepping on some people's toes. Right. And it, it, it's like unheard of to the point of that they actually, um, uh, I believe it was Freed because uh, it, it's interesting because I, I double checking all the information, Woods and Freed kind of get swapped like the same story is usually told. It's usually kind of like flipped of like, was it Woods or Freed who actually who, yeah. who actually did it? But I believe it was Freed who actually, um, I think it was like a trip in Vegas or something. It was a trip in Vegas or Florida, and they were there for like a conference. And then so he met Goober there, and he's like, oh, like, hey, how, like, what are you doing? And like, it's like, oh, nice to meet you here. Hey, by the way, it's like, can I grab you a coffee? And then so they go out and get a coffee, and he's like, hey, man, so I've been, you know, trying to get, like, you know, this Godzilla film made. Like, what do you think? Because the idea being is that he was playing with fire by going onto the lot and actually, like, scheduling a meeting. Right. Because at this point, everybody knew what this guy was trying to do. Right, yeah. And then he's like, well, now, and if he's it going to like the, the boss. Like, that was just, like, the, the unhidden secret. Like, if he, if he was on the lot, he was, like, going to ask about this movie. Right, yeah. And then it could easily, at, wor- at like, worst, it could get, like, traced back to him. Yeah. So he comes up with this convoluted plan of like knowing where he's going to be. And then he's like just saying like, oh, yeah, I happen to be in the neighborhood. Hey, by the way, do you want to meet up? And then he talks to him, uh, to Goober, about uh, a Godzilla film. Goober shares the enthusiasm. He's like he can instantly see it. Uh, like we say, he's like the producer from the Superman Lives movie. He like has the he puts like the the fake uh, movie like it's screen like, up like, in the sky, and he's just like I, I I can see it. But he just instantly sees the potential potential for, like, for a giant like giant lizard monster movie blockbuster big mm-hmm. big thing. And if we remember, Goober actually goes back down to Sony and then and points out TriStar, who if I remember correctly was the first people who said no to mm-hmm. the project, like we're not going to do that. And uh, he basically went back to TriStar and is like. No, you're going to do that movie. You're going to do a Godzilla movie. So um, with all that said, uh, deals uh, were made. Um, A copyright was kind of uh, written, rewritten to the point of that, that while obviously Toho ultimately holds the ultimate copyright for Godzilla, that... um, the, uh, the, this Godzilla would kind of like maintain kind of like a, a co-copyright right, uh, yeah. thing where it's like they can kind of still maintain the name. It, 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 in, in the ultimate, like when you really look at the broad uh, picture, it, it, it's kind of like a risky gamble because it's like, well, whatever these guys are doing, they're going to share the Godzilla copyright. So it's like you're kind of like whatever the Americans come up with, it's like stuck yeah. under that brand yeah, regardless. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's just like any sort of adaptation mm-hmm. to an extent, especially like, adaptation of something that comes from a foreign source material you know where it's like yes like you do like this adaptation and you do hold like a certain amount of rights to it but you know it's just the risk of like well now there's this is going to be like you're part of the brand for better or for worse but especially i think for something like godzilla it's especially kind of a risk because like when you take like like let's say you take another like like anime or manga adaptation like let's say like you take like, you know, another one that failed, like, Ghost in the Shell. Like, where it's like, there's kind of like, yes, it's like an adaptation, but people kind of know, you know, specifically, like, oh, this is what the source material is, and the source material is well-regarded. So, like, oh, it's just like, people can brush it off. Like, they'll complain, but they'll brush it off as, like, oh, this is a bad adaptation. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, with Godzilla, there's already this kind of negative perception, or or this, like, not not necessarily negative, but there's not necessarily a great reception around what Godzilla is, right. especially on American shores. 
So with that, it is a lot more of a risk because you don't even have the like, well, at least like the source material was good, or at least we can bank it on, or the studio can be like, oh, well, we can bank it on people who like are want to see the source material in a new way. Like, no, it's just like, this is going to be like a wholly a risk for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, definitely. And so they, uh, so they got the copyright uh, down. Uh, they got the merchandising rights uh, all down. Uh, they even signed into the deal that they would have an animated spinoff on the way, even if they, uh, whatever, of whatever they make. So they go through all this. Toho, completely on board. We don't have to get too much into that. We've said many times that Toho Wanted generally to... was always on board with Americans doing a Godzilla film. They were like, we want to see what you can bring to the table. So on we go with an American production of Godzilla now and that's kind of where the recap of our 98 information kind of ends uh, because we go kind of straight into that film like we kind of mentioned this the, this kind of road bump along the way yeah. we, we have mentioned that Jandabont was well it's time to turn this road bump into a speed hump and we're going to have to slow down even more so like now we're going to get a little bit more of a deep dive, yeah. as it were, <laughs> into this specific Godzilla movie. Uh, so, um, and so as we go into this movie, uh, one of the, the little funny things that I like is, I believe it was a Peter Goober phrase where he's like, all right, now it's time for the big mo. And the big mo for him was the big momentum. It's like, you got the green light. Don't slow down. Like keep the truck, keep the train right. rolling. Which is which is like a genuinely like important thing in in film mm-hmm. because it's one of those things where you want to keep the momentum of a production even if you have to alter things and change things because like once you get there's plenty of films in history that once you get into the cycle of well we're doing a bunch of rewrites or we're you know we're losing a bunch of directors mm-hmm. or like our actor sort of thing it's like once you kind of lose that momentum. You know, that's kind of the that that can just turn into just, you know, those bad productions. Mm-hmm. So you want you do want to keep pushing forward and, and like get the movie made because yeah. it is development hell. It is so easy for a movie not to get made. Yeah. All right. So um, from the get go, here is the mandate with this film. It's going to be a completely original retelling that it wasn't going to be a sequel or a spinoff of uh, any of the Toho films. Uh, they wanted to kind of completely make this their own thing. But the mandate up at this point was that despite that, that it was going to maintain not only the message, uh, the the messaging and kind of like the feel of a Godzilla movie, but also all of the tropes. So while they really wanted to make, you know, their own thing, they definitely wanted to make a Godzilla film. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and, and it was interesting that for, like, all throughout this production – that was the thing. It was like, how do we not just like, you know, kind of just make an American version of it, but like, how do we actually translate and make essentially a Toho film? Right. Um, and that was always um, the uh, the goal yeah. with the film. Um, so right up at the bat, um, the debate um, just conceptually um, was what role Godzilla was going to play uh, in the film. Was he going to be an antagonist? Was he going to be a protagonist? What were they going to do? And while many admitted that there was, while they did want to kind of like stay true to the original roots of Godzilla, which was kind of more of a destructive antagonist thing, there was a very fair argument to say that uh, at that point, especially for American audiences, that a more protagonistic role was attributed to Godzilla. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, 
Because, again, like, what, what people would realize was kind of that later Showa-era stuff, I yeah. feel like. And oh, yeah, because at this point, like, we're in the other mid- than that original film, the later Showa-era films had been the one that had been on, like, syndication, and that's the right. one that people we're in the midst the of the, we're in the midst of the Hasey era for the Toho stuff, but, again, 84 didn't really hit, like, what, Biolanti went, like, straight to video, and then the ones after that didn't even really see a release on American shores, so... Kind of that return, the hasty return of Godzilla to that antagonistic force was definitely not on anybody's minds. It was definitely like the Godzilla of stuff like Megalon and Mechagodzilla, where he is kind of at the forefront of being kind of this heroic character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I would also say that it definitely makes sense, I think, from, especially just from, especially at that time, how American Hollywood kind of worked, where it's like, like you know, merchandising and the potential for, you know, spin-offs and sequels you, i think you want to kind of it to be kind of that heroic character because i mean even when you look at other stuff around that time like part i mean yes like it makes sense in the story of terminator 2 that the t you know that arnold's good but it's also because okay well now we we, we want to root for arnold and we can like have t1 t800 toys and right all that sort right of stuff right too. definitely you know and it's just i think like that's kind of where the american mindset was going to be where it's like well if we make godzilla something to kind of root for in some sense we can you know kind of make money off the character yeah uh th- those are those are all good instincts um so uh ultimately they do go in the route of making a destructive yet likable or sympathetic mm-hmm. creature uh not too unlike uh, the uh what the hasty films ended up uh, doing ultimately and that's kind of like the balance that they were uh trying to strike so the project took its first significant step forward with uh, the hiring of Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio uh, when they were uh, brought on to write the screenplay in 1993. Because um, I believe it was around like the 90, like early 1993, 92 period where, you know, they made this announcement that this was going right. to be a thing that was happening. Um, so a little bit about Elliott and Rossio at Ooh, the time. At the time. Um, it, it's interesting because... Obviously, if you you've been following like your movies, especially like your big main mainstream movies, these names are kind of commonplace. They, Maybe even a they, little too commonplace. They pepper themselves throughout the entire like '90s and early 2000s history, and even to the to to the 2010s. Uh, yeah, I think like, and you can say like a lot of their earlier notable work was like, I mean, you know, they're attached to things like The Mask of Zorro and like Pirates of the Caribbean is 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 like the well, the big they, one. They've the thing about them specifically um, is that they they've been a lot of people who do a lot of like they're brought in for the major rewrite or they're brought in to like work on like kind of this script because a lot of the stuff that they're known for like you know just as an example for Pirates of the Caribbean, Elliot and Rossio are brought in to like work on a script that was already there. And then they're the ones who kind of okay, after that they're kind of hired to do the rest of them. That type of thing. Yeah. Same thing where it's like, I think like Shrek they're attached to. Yeah, and, Shrek is on, on uh, Aladdin. It's like a lot of a lot of times. Yeah, well, a, I was a go- lot of times it's like they're within the big group, mm-hmm. like, and they do have movies where they've written it by themselves, and I I do have my feelings on those movies very specifically, but they are someone who they're they're constantly the guys in Hollywood that are like, okay, well. We have this script. Are, we kind of like it. Is, We're putting you on the project. Are, are pirates like? But that's like them, though. Like, are they the main writers on pirates? Not or? on one. Well, it, again, it's the thing oh, where interesting. not on one. The one is one of those things where it's like 
it has kind of like if you if you know your Hollywood your WGA parlance, mm-hmm. it's one of those things where there's a diff there's four writers, but it has the the difference where it's like it's like the two original writers, and then you have the and and then Elliot and Rocio. Right. Where it's like, if you have four writers that actually worked on the movie together, it would be like commas, where it's like, it's like Nick, Will, Patrick, and Kenny. Like, those were the things. Right. But for them, it's more like, okay, Nick and Will wrote the original script. They still get the credit. Mm-hmm. But Kenny and Patrick, they wrote, you know, significant amount in this rewrite where they take the credit. Mm-hmm. Or they have they have to take credit. Mm-hmm. So the thing about pirates is is a major example where it's like Elliot and Rocio came on that movie like more so like when it became like the Depp Johnny Depp era of that film because you know originally it was like a possibly a Steve Martin vehicle stuff like that. Um, Robin Williams was attached at one point to pirates. This is a whole pirates podcast now. Uh, but eventually they get. Hey, uh, if anybody were to do it, it's you and me. Yeah. Like, if anybody would be down to hey, do a pirates podcast, if we do other franchises, which is one of the ideas we've discussed, doing the five, six pirates movies. I, would, now, I wouldn't mind. I would do I, it. It would be a fun little, you fun little diversion. How it, it would just be like, how does one franchise go from one of the most watchable movies of all time, in my opinion, to? The most recent one, <laughs> and, and, and the thing is, is also I was just on pirates. Like you and I are people who will defend two and three. Like they're not perfect. Yeah, like y- they're not you, perfect movies, yeah. but we will definitely like defend like the original trilogy. Yeah, but the thing it, is, it's, it's it's listen. The original three. This is becoming a pirates podcast. the The original pirates trilogy is a bonkers, just swings for the fences, like is way more epic than it has any reason to be. So much lore yeah. is like is is squeezed in <laughs> to like especially 2 and 3 just so much of backstory and lore and like ideas are just And and, in and there. once again, I agree, it doesn't all work, but I still love I it. I have a hell of a time. <laughs> but then once you get the once you get to on Stranger Tides, yeah, the, the whole me. thing the whole thing falls apart. But anyway, so Ellie and Rocio for that one, they then once, you know, Pirates 1 is this huge success, then they are coming in to be like Okay, well now you're our, you're our writers on these movies, right? Uh, but what's interesting at, at this point, uh, while they you know are kind of more uh, famous or infamous depending on where you stand, uh, they really uh, going into this film had only two major credits. Yeah. Uh, one of them being the uh, 1989 uh, Fred Savage and ha- Howie Mandel comedy Little Monsters. Uh, and uh, a rewrite for uh, Disney's Aladdin. Right, yeah, because yeah. that's the other thing where it's like, because also, brief little history, just really brief. The first Disney movie to actually have an actual physical script was Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times with the way that that studio was working at that time, working with actual scripts was just so, you know, traditional animation history, even beyond Disney, was just like, Everything script-wise was like just storyboards. It was all just storyboards that would be. Whereas now with Beauty and the Beast, they were starting to write actually screenplays. So with with Aladdin, they could bring in writers like Ellie and Rocio, like outside writers, to like just kind of touch up the script a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, at that. So that's kind of again where like they had like that the one little monster script, but they were still known for touching up that Aladdin script. Well, what's funny about the little monster story is that uh, the I believe the film uh, did so uh, badly, like it just completely tanked. And uh, one of the things that's really funny about all the interviews that are in the Sci-Fi Japan uh, website uh, is that I did find out that um, both of these guys have a, a, a really... They, They'll poke fun at themselves. They're they're definitely I, yes. not uh, too precious about themselves because one of the jokes it made, he's like, 
he thinks that little mon uh elliot uh, joked that uh he thought that little monsters was a great credential because uh he just kind of likes that he can say that he had a script that uh bankrupted a studio <laughs> And he and he and he's he's always like saying stuff like that. I have I definitely have my opinions on Elliot and Rocio overall, but they do seem like guys who are a little bit self-aware of the type of movie that they write. Mm-hmm. Even though they are the type of writers who will randomly put like there's Elliot and Rocio moments like in their movies. Like the one I always go back to um is in Oh, you were calling them out in this script. Yes. Yeah. There's so there's definitely some Elliot and Rocio things in this script, but the one I always go back to of just like this is an Elliot and Rocio moment is in the Lone Ranger mm-hmm. um, where there's just this random little like aside with like a vampire bunny where they literally like are at a campfire. Oh, and yes. Then, yeah. And yeah. then they're like looking at this bunny and then the bunny like shows fangs and like like I th- if I remember correctly, it, e- it either like it- it's implied that it's like vampire could actually like eat something. And, I, and when I saw that movie for the first time, I'm like, oh, that's just an Elliot and Rose, you know, like weird little thing to just throw in there for the heck of throwing it in there. Right, so. yeah. Um, so for Godzilla, when they were brought on, they had admitted that they were not huge fans of Godzilla, but they were honored to get the opportunity because obviously they knew that it was a, uh, a big Blockbuster, project. yeah. yeah. Um, and um, they were honored that they uh, that the producers and everybody at the studio reached out to them and said, hey, like, can you, will you we kind of think yeah. we, well, I mean, we think you, you have what it takes like especially like if you have you like i mean again it's like you have that one failure but when you do have a credit on aladdin like then aladdin is like again a huge movie big success definitely big like even though it's like animation it's still like a big movie and to, so it's like they've got an opportunity to kind of quote unquote redeem themselves i mm-hmm. guess so they uh so they're brought on and all the accounts of working with the, the duo during the entirety of this project is nothing but nice things and uh not only is it nothing but nice things but the ultimate thing was that the studio was constantly the stu- well i should say the producers were constantly happy with the script they were just like they they always thought that they thought all their ideas were great they thought that it was exactly the direction that they wanted to go into uh but kind of like getting into the process of writing it um because one thing we didn't mention because we mentioned in the other podcast was that one of the meetings that tristar had with toho is that toho sent in a document about these are all kind of like the ways that you know we want you to treat godzilla and you know like keep him like he can't eat fish which remember that was a rule yes uh he must breathe fire uh remember that's a rule yeah because somebody didn't (laughs) ultimately (laughs) um but in like this is how he looked but um uh, but kind of getting into it, uh, Elliot said that Toho insisted that we not make light of the monster, uh, and that actually helped us in finding the right tone um, as we um, went into writing it. And then we uh, and they also integrated some social, social and political implications of the concept. And because when they went into it, they didn't know exactly what type of movie that they should do, and they actually felt that like Toho's guidelines actually guided them into yeah. a proper direction, especially when you follow the directions and you know to be honest i can i can say that like you know i mean it's not unheard of if you want to make a campy godzilla film no i mean i think that there's also there's definitely like that's easy a direction because like you you can see like again within that same era it's not like the exact same movie but there's there's a more self-aware kind of flintstones live action movie version of this Mm -hmm. where it's like oh like we know this is silly so we're just gonna go all in on it being silly Mm mm-hmm 
Uh, the duo would go on to further discuss the fine line with humanizing Godzilla while making him a monster uh, to fear. And during this product, uh, during this whole process, Elliot got a tip and inspiration from a friend who was actually an avid Godzilla fan, mm-hmm. uh, who actually described Godzilla as not nice. But he doesn't like other monsters more. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and that actually, and yeah, Elliot, especially like and Elliot hear- said like that like clicked with him right away, and that was like the big like this is how we kind of like yeah. uh, portray this. Especially creature. if you have like someone who is knowledgeable, definitely like that's like even like within like the Hazy era films, that's like definitely a, a aspect of the character where it's like yeah, he's gonna destroy, but if there's another monster in front of him, right. that's like you know he's gonna pro- he's gonna protect himself and in a sense protect. The planet, and I will say, just based on all that, again, I do have, I, I maybe have been rough on Elliot and Rocio for their tropes over the years, especially like modern Elliot and Rocio, um, kind of like post pirates versions of them. Uh-huh. But the one thing I will say, and I think it's uh, described well in in this little description of them, they seem like the perfect writers in terms of they're really easy to work with. Mm-hmm. It's just in terms of. They will take the studio notes. They will take the like whatever notes they're given, any guidelines that they're given. They're going to work within those parameters. They're going to work with the producers, with the directors, to be like, what is the vision? They're not writers. And, and you see it when they poke fun of themselves. They're not writers that are wholly precious about the material. Because I think there are writers like that out there where it's like you you need them to change something. You know, it's like – and it, like. I get it. I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm a writer they're, myself. They're professional, right. uh, passionate, but working writers. Right. Like, they, and they, but they just seem like they're very good within like the studio system. Mm-hmm. Like they're very good for that style of writing and that style of movie. And like that's a that's a credit of itself because sometimes that's not an easy direction to go. Uh, for the human plot line, uh, Ellie and Rocio saw the story as, uh, or they were conceiving the story as kind of like a Captain Ahab type story. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yes, okay. In, in they terms they of, actually reference Captain Ahab, I'm sure, at one point in the movie. <laughs> uh, uh, again, and, another very Ellie and Rocio trope, wearing their inspirations directly on the sleeve. Uh, one of the early calls uh, right from the beginning, though, is that they wanted a the lead to be a female lead yes. because they were just taking inspiration. One, they actually admitted that it was just like, you know, there, there's just so many dudes in, right. in the lead role. Especially like it's in like, that era. Like yeah. it's like, you know, this was like post like late 80s. So you had like, you know, the Bruce Willis's, the Arnold Schwarzenegger's, you know, that sort of thing, like that sort of thing popping up. So um so uh, so they get into that, and uh, so the producers love the first draft of the script. Uh, they're absolutely happy with it. Uh, so then begins the uh, search uh, for a director. And uh, so everything's been going good up until this yeah. point, but this is kind of uh, when we're starting to Split, hit yeah. the, the, the first snag. Because one of the things is that they definitely wanted a, uh, like Woods and Freed wanted a recognizable name uh, for a director. Yeah. Uh, but as time was going on, it was proving a tough sell. And ultimately, at the end of the day, this is what was happening. No one was interested. Everybody, the constant thing was like, why are what, like either why would you make a Godzilla movie? What would you do with a Godzilla movie? Godzilla is stupid. There's no way you can take it seriously. And they were actually shocked at how many times this happened to them. Um, now really uh, speaks to just that reputation, that lasting reputation, because I think it's like, you know, especially we, we go back to our Megalon episode. We do more distinctly talk about why that movie is so important within that reputation, but it is very striking at at how long that reputation has kept. And it it is just kind of interesting just because of, of where 
film and film history is in in the 90s in which we were where i feel like it's is right at the at right at you know still at right at the early age of the home video where like we could have like older movies easily accessible to mm. us but of course they're not going to get those older godzilla movies those more serious God, like the one serious godzilla movie before this but i feel like you know it's one of those things where even like a couple years down the line i feel like maybe you're pulling it a little bit more you know not counting 98 but i'm just thinking like if you're doing this like early 2000s i feel like there's a little bit more of an opportunity to kind of find that director well but also think about it like you know they're going after like these big they're going after the big names yeah like if you're going like you could have gotten like because it's like this is 94 so like like you know, Peter, people like Peter Jackson and like you know Guillermo del Toro are just like names, like, well, not, not even out there. But like a Peter Jackson would have been like a perfect subject for this because he likes working with that stuff anyway. But this was even before Frighteners for him, so it's not like he was, you know, you know, in that position to be like the big name director. Yeah, but think about like our modern monster movies, like you know, yeah, like, they're all horror directors. The, the pull is like either like. Oh, like a horror director who may has a vision, or you, they made one indie movie, and like they right. are actually passionate about making a big. But budget that's almost movie like, especially like. But that's also kind of the big like. That's like the way to go, just generally in blockbuster filmmaking, because it's like that's what you know, like with with exceptions here and there. That's like what Marvel has been doing. Mm-hmm. I, that's what DC's been trying to do. I think with a little bit more of their kind of more recent slate, like mm-hmm. with their with their Harley Quinns and their Shazams. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, like, the big thing in blockbuster filmmaking. Like, yes, you still have, you know, big-time directors making big-time movies, but now you are kind of pulling out more of the, they did one or two indie films. And sometimes it works. Sometimes they get a Mark Webb. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> um... Sorry, we went on we went on a whole rant last night about uh, the, the, the Spider-Man uh, movies. The so, amazing well, Spider-Man yeah. movies. Um... It, if you actually remember, one of the, uh, the 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 first people approached were Emmerich and Devlin. If you remember yes. that, like the, they were legitimately like the first people approached, and uh, Devlin was a little bit more favorable towards the idea. But both of them came like still settled on to like what would you even do? Like right. they they were quoted by saying they couldn't even conceive of how you would make something like this, yeah. which is kind of strange, but whatever. Um, and so. Other than a bunch of directors that were actually offered, there were some other directors that were kind of uh, that were discussed. Uh, Tim Burton was. Oh, a I director. mean, it was like Tim Burton was. You know, yeah, he's the name at this. He's like one of the names at this point. Like they, like because it's like as you look at Tim Burton at this point, it's like because people were saying the same thing. You could conceive that people were saying similar things about Batman in '89, mm-hmm. where it's like. What are you going to do with a Batman movie? Because people, again, had the perception of, like, well, it's, like, what comic book movies were. It's, like, yeah, like, Superman worked in the 70s, but, like, people still remember the 60s Batman. You know, and then Tim Burton was, at that point, like, basically an unknown who had just gotten, you know, just not too long after getting fired from Disney for, you know, doing a, doing film on his own time. And, you know, he's, he, you know, he makes Batman. He's done Batman Returns at this point, And, like, Beetlejuice. It's, like, he's, like such a recognize like he's the name mm-hmm. of like early 90s filmmaking like and that's the truth and they and for all those reasons they reached out to him uh but but one of the things uh that they ultimately didn't ultimately go the direction with him was because they felt that while they loved his style that is what he is he's a very stylistic uh director and 
the ultimately they they wanted to their version to not necessarily move away but they wanted to distinguish their version of Godzilla without the the stylistic camp and then there is a stylistic right. camp to everything that Tim Burton does yeah so I mean like again like you look at Batman out. Returns yes and it's like well even like the both of his Batman both movies of his Batman have, movies I mean Beetlejuice obviously like a couple years out like Mars Attacks. Like is after this, but that's like one of the next movies he makes. Well, kudos on them for realizing like you know this is the director's style, and yeah. as opposed to bringing on the director and then like not wanting which him happens, to do. yeah, yeah, which happens too much uh, these days. One thing I think you will find funny is that while it was ne- no offer was ever made and it was never a serious consideration, but at one point somebody was interested in the Coen Brothers doing a doing a film and. It would have been the ultimate, like, let's see if they want to make a blockbuster. But again, I, I kind of put that in the same realm as, like, Tarantino doing Man From U.N.C.L.E. when we talked about that, where it's like, that's still early enough in their career where, because again, like, when we talk about Tarantino doing Man From U.N.C.L.E. in the mid-90s, that was like, he had done Reservoir Dogs and um, uh, Pulp Fiction at that point. So it's like, Oh, there's still like a time in his career we where he could go into okay, well now I'm going to go into a blockbuster film. Eventually he, you know, he turns into Jackie Brown and kind of keeps to being the Tarantino style. Coen Brothers were the same way. They had a couple more films under their belt at this point. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm trying to think of specifically what they would have done. The, yeah, this would have been like 93, 94. Yeah, so point. it's like probably right around like Miller's Crossing Barton Fink era for the Coen Brothers. Mm-hmm. So it's again, it's still early enough in their career where it's like, yeah, they've done a little bit more, but it's like really when you look at them, they had their like they had their very small Nobody really knew about it. First film of Love Simple, then Raising Arizona, which which had you know Nicolas Cage had a little bit more name to it, and then they've kind of do, they've kind of done this noir, and they're in the midst of doing this kind of weirdo you know um, Hollywood movie about Hollywood. But this is still a point where it's like if they wanted to do you know this is pre Fargo because that's like there's always a film within a director's career where they really establish themselves like this is kind of mm-hmm. where I am right. So I think like Fargo is like that big name movie where it's like okay this is a Coen Brothers movie you know this is a Coen Brothers movie they they get all the accolades and and the you know awards and stuff like that or the nominations that's where they get the attention where it's like this is right before that so there's still that chance where it's like why not reach out to them cuz they're directors that have made good movies some you know not maybe not huge successes but you know well reviewed have a specific style now, the thing about the Coens, though, is that this would have been very interesting. Because like Tarantino, like the Coens really never worked on... Very rarely. They they have done it. But they very rarely work on scripts that they haven't written. Mm. Um, or at least haven't touched at one point or another. Um, I think, like, nowadays, the exception is... I think their True Grit script was originally not theirs, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong on that. Um they might have done a rewrite on that too, but like they were, they were also people that probably like if they did it, they would want to write it. Oh, you know, yeah. they would want to do their version of it. Yeah. But, um, but it's like it's like I don't think they would have accepted it. But to reach out to them is not absurd. It's yeah, not. It's, like, just it's like not at this point. Thing. Like it's like you know why not? Because that's the thing when you go back. Because this will go into where I kind of do like some of my casting when we get to the when we when we cast the movie. But you got to remember that like when we say like a name like a Coen Brothers. Now you kind of know, oh, like, you know, like, you know their whole career at this point and like where it went. But you got to remember, this is like mid early to mid 90s. So a lot of the stuff, a lot of the people that we're talking about were very like even Tim Burton, where it's like Tim Burton, you know, has his a little bit more of his style in there. But this is still like 
you know, Batman's 89. This is only, you know, five years removed from that. So there's still time for that, that, that life and that style and that direction to kind of, and what movies he's making to kind of take as many turns as necessary. Well, regardless of all these great director names, Nick, none of them want to do it. Right. No, no, nobody wants to do it. And at this point, uh, Goober's precious Big Mo is uh, being lost. There, right. there is no Big Mo. Right. And again, this, this is the this is the thing I was talking about earlier. Where it's like this is where the development hells. This is where the lost scripts start to happen because you just hit that one snag, and then it seems like it's forever until you kind of get moving again. And it was so bad that if we remember that back in uh, Japan, Toho. You they know, were getting they, ready to they, stop. They wanted to wrap up, but then they're like, uh, I mean, they were quoted as saying every year we waited to see if TriStar would produce its Godzilla film before deciding to produce another one, and we got tired of doing that. Uh, and then so they went on to uh, uh, continue to make entries all the way up until uh, Godzilla vs. Destroy in 1995. Um, so, like, where where is a director? Well, Nick, they do find a director in one Jan DeBont. Yes. Uh, so Jan DeBont, uh, director of Speed, uh, was a hot commodity uh, be- for that film. Yeah. All eyes were all eyes were on him. Everybody wanted him. And just to reiterate, too, he had also, I mean, what he was known for before Speed was being the cinematographer on films such as Die Hard. Right, correct. Like, he was basically the action cinematographer of his day. Like, if it was, like, an action movie in the late 80s, early 90s, Jan DuPont was probably around that. And then Speed was his first directorial effort. Um, so that was definitely like kind of where things were kind of picking up for him. And uh, so uh, everybody want, everybody wanted a piece of DeBont. But uh, one of the things that kind of kept him locked up is that after doing Speed, he was actually signed in with a deal for uh, – with a uh, – what do they call it? Uh, it was with 20th Century Fox, but is it like a first option deal? Uh, uh, right of first refusal. Yeah, yeah. I th- yeah, I think it's just basically that like um, – it's interesting because that was during the time when directors were very much signed in yes. at studios. Studios, yeah. Um, which I don't know if it. No, quite it's more works producers. Like, like the closest you have is like Abrams and Bad Robot. Yeah. Have like kind of like there's like uh, Abrams has had that with with Paramount and and yeah, because it kind of like seems like nowadays it's like directors ultimately. I know studios try to do as much that they can lock down directors with yeah. projects, but like it kind of seems like ultimately directors just will go right. where like, they like, want. It's like more so like the creative forces, like, but it's like, but even like then it's like Abrams that's a more producerial deal yeah. than it is like a director deal. Um. So, um, sorry, where was I? Okay. So anyway, so uh, hit so. Uh, and it's a little bit unclear about how exactly he got attached to the project, but he got wind of the project. Jandabont is the first director and is probably going all the way back and sharing the same enthusiasm as Woods and Freed and Goober. So into the idea. And then he just like, he was kind of one of these people like, like I, like I kind of want a piece of this movie. Right. Like it's like, and, uh, and I think also, I mean, I can see it too from a, from him because he's got that cinematographer background. Oh, I mean, it's it's more than that. Uh, he here are some here, here's a quote from him. It's like some people fall in love with westerns or other things. Uh, for me, I fell in love with Godzilla movies. And if you go into the Sci-Fi Japan article, he goes into basically how he grew up with them. He like he, oh, so he's like a he's like a long time. Yeah, fan. he was one of the people like where uh, he remembered seeing them on TV, and as he grew older, he would actually go out of his way to try to get imports of the movies and like 
uh, the like the actual like the original Japanese cuts and things like that. So he was all he was all on board with it. So he got a couple meetings. Uh, he was able to read the script. Absolutely loved the script, and it was just something that he wanted to do yesterday. Like oh, this man. is just what he wanted to this do. This makes it even more sad. Yeah, uh, and uh, this was an example. Twentieth Century Fox actually respected uh, the decision and um, said that you know they let him out of the contract uh, so long that he returned to direct speed two which that, he did not yeah <laughs> um did he not did he not do speed two i thought he did let me double check yeah i believe he didn't but speed speed two is his own monster yeah let uh, me double check on this yeah check that one i thought I no thought he, he, you're right you're right he did yeah but uh, but that was um, like they 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 said he, they would let him out of the contract but he he did have to come back and and do that um and it, it was funny because even then, this was an example of some directors and people who passed on it, uh, including Devlin himself, uh, actually uh, were, uh, um, lamented like turning it down because they're like, because everybody respected Debont at this point, and then they were just like, "Wait, what does Debont see about this movie that like I don't see? Like, like clearly, yeah. like this guy uh, has a, a vision." I, I apologize, Jan. I thought you wouldn't do a movie as bad as Speed. Two. Ooh, man, so much shade. On this, on this hey, episode. Speed 2 Cruise Control is one of the all-time bad movies. Not one I would own, but it is one of the all-time bad movies. So, um, Jan DeBont's uh, on the project, and uh, you know he still has to kind of get into the good graces with everybody. And one of the things is it's a two-step process. First, he has to win over Toho. And uh, he actually... Uh, has a quote, uh, this is what his experience with Toho was like. I went into Toho and we had a big meeting in a gigantic room with the uh, uh, with the directors and executives and the lawyers there. And what they wanted to hear about was why I loved Godzilla. They had some issues with the scale that I wanted for Godzilla. Uh, briefly, Jan DeBont's... Uh, he wanted to make an epic like he it, it, like his goal was like he wants to take Godzilla to epic proportions right make like the most like Godzilla centric focused movie big stakes big scale like maybe the biggest Godzilla you've ever seen yeah, things like I that mean, and again seeing like what he did with speed like speed is a perfect like this... ra- raise the stakes movie mm-hmm. every single next step in speed is the higher state like oh like the bus is out of control oh they have to get off the freeway but there's traffic oh they have to jump the the bridge oh they have to like get everybody like it's like every single step of speed oh like they're losing gas it's like he even though that movie was like it wasn't to that epicness level like he's someone who definitely was like interested in like finding ways to keep those stakes getting higher like he's the guy i think stakes have never been higher like look at twister like yeah. Twister is the same way, where mm-hmm. it's like every single next step in Twister is like, oh man, this is getting like big. Twisters are becoming bigger Twisters, yeah. and then there's like a there's like a boss Twister yes. at the end of it. Um, so uh, so he's going through that process. Uh, they didn't like uh, he continued to say they didn't like him to be that big because when you're working with men in suits, they they can only be but so big and scale without losing the detail in the models. It's tricky, and they learned that by making those movies and seeing what they what could go wrong. And I got them on I got them on my side by telling them I don't want to change the character of Godzilla. I want to I do want to use CGI for some of the Godzilla effects, but I don't want to change his size or what he looks like. And that's what made 
of them trust me. So it was it, this whole meeting that, you know, he's coming in and I'm sure like his enthusiasm for the project can be a little bit like, whoa, whoa, like big American hotshot coming in, like, uh, yeah. or like, you know, hotshot from America, I should say, coming right, in. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but this hot, sh- I should just say, this hotshot coming in with these grand things about what he's going to do to our Godzilla. And while he has big he's scale, Dutch. yeah. While he has big scale uh, proportions in mind, he doesn't really want to ultimately change the core fundamentals of Godzilla. So uh, Devon had won over Toho uh, at this point, and he was actually kind of surprised that uh, he was able to uh, so easily. But uh, he discovered that uh, it was not going to be so easily with the upper management at Sony. Um, Even though the studio had licensed Godzilla, the executives who initially rejected the idea were still a little bit squeamish because remember TriStar and most of Sony didn't even want to do this movie. Uh, so uh, DeBont had expressed that the studio was very worried about a movie like this, uh, especially just with it just being, you know, it's kind of like uh, something that may have appealed in Japan. And it's like, well, what's the American appeal it's here? It's still a big risk. Yeah. Um, there were endless meetings. Um, and uh, a name that both you and I know very well, Executive Vice President of Production, Amy Pascal. Was oh, boy. <laughs> she was the lead on many of these meetings. And I don't think she, and this is still him talking, uh, and I don't think she quite understood anything about Godzilla. She kept asking more and more people to come into meetings and give their opinions. They always believed that nobody, uh, they always believe that nobody knows anything. They thought that nobody had ever heard of Godzilla and they were worried about that and that ultimately he would have no appeal do you think she at this point in her career she had the glimmer in her eye for a uh, morpheus living vampire <laughs> morbius morbius, I should say. <laughs> morbius living like do you think that was a glimmer in her eye at this point uh, I no, I I I, I don't think I, she don't even knows so. who Morbius was. Yeah, I I think I I think it's literally a case by case scenario in which every case is her not believing in any project, <laughs> except for Morbius the Living Vampire. <laughs> um, you can tell that uh, we are you know we we know Amy. So so uh, Devon said so we wanted to clear the way with a really good script that they basically couldn't refuse and that's what we thought we had anyway I felt that Ted and Terry uh, did such a good job on Godzilla they came up with a really good script and that's when the problems really started um so you can go to the website for a lot of this information but so I'm going to kind of like skim through uh some of this because Really, at this point, while all this is going on, the movie is in pre-production. And I'm talking about models are being made, character designs are being made, storyboards are being made, uh, maquettes, uh, like Design. special, yeah, yeah, special effects, um, like um, like temp work, and like like just everything was being designed. Like there are models, statues, and uh, puppets, everything uh, regarding uh, this movie. The Stan Winston Company was in charge of designing a lot of the uh, th- designing a lot of the creatures. Uh, the mandate with Godzilla was don't change like if it's it ain't broke so don't fix it but they did want to kind of like do a little bit of something with it to make it their own and and ultimately like at the end of the day kind of like what we have seen with like the legendary Godzilla yeah. uh, films where right. it's like you see it and you're like oh that's Godzilla but they did they were going to add some of Debat did kind of go back to he always wanted a real 
real world approach, quote unquote, where he did want to make it seem like this was a creature that could feasibly exist, but without changing like the general like iconography of the right, character. Right. Um, so that was one of the big things. The, the the biggest thing that I could say about the movie, though, because there there were all types of just uh, designs. Uh, there is very much a there. There's no physical manifestation of it, but there are sketches of one of your favorite parts of the script. Uh, in which a certain something happens to a certain character. Yeah. There are uh, there are sketches uh, of that. I'm going to I'm gonna have to see that. And it's also, the movie was completely storyboarded too, to my understanding. Um, but the biggest thing was the special effects of the film. DeBont wanted to go completely like game-changing with this movie. And you have to remember, because at this time... Now you're competing with Jurassic Park. Uh, right, because that's like, yeah, because like Jurassic Park changes the game in CG, and, and while CG had definitely been used in films before this, Jurassic Park just proves that like you can make a film around it mm-hmm. and, and, and make it like a big a part and big part of its like magic. So definitely like this is right where, because, you know, God's, God, yeah. You can do uh, it. Yeah. Um, you know, this is like around again. We're kind of in ninety three, ninety four. Jurassic Park is you know around coming out, and you know it, its special effects are just blowing everybody out of the water. Right now, with this film, Devont wanted to do not two times that, but ten times that. And I'm talking about he wanted to do an amalgamation of practical effects, puppet work, animatronic work, full CG, not only creatures, environments. He basically was pulling a James Cameron with this with this film. And and he actually they've reached out at, at certain parts of production they were reaching out to James Cameron and his people about like advice about how do you pull off like these large feats in visual effects. Like this was not like just some sort of like yeah, oh like of the time like uh, like because CGI was also just kind of becoming like a big thing like with Jurassic Park and everything. So as this new technology is budding, DeBont was had his eyes like to the stars. Like he he was like he was going to make something that um exceeded everybody's uh expectations to the umph degree. And I think it's also like DeBont's just history cuz obviously he's done Speed, which is a big special like a big special effects movie with that bus. But when you look at like like again the action movies he had done and cuz he also does the cinematography for like Hunt for Red October, which has a lot of special effects and very good cinematography. Die Hard, a lot of stunts. Cujo, which, you know, had the dog thing. And and I just think that, like, he could be somebody who has that vision of, like, I, I, I have this kind of experience with the practical stuff. Let's up it with the CG and make something completely d- new yeah. and different. It was just something that, like... It, it, Big it, vision, though. It, it reminded me of something, like, when you watch, like, Dark Crystal, like, Age of Resistance right now. Like, yeah. something that's going to, like, meld that, like, uh, just really take the visual effects to the next level. That That's really what he wanted to do. So all this is going on, and they get so far in production that at this point, everybody involved in the film is like, all right, we're getting ready to shoot this thing. Like, th- this is happening. Like, it came short of, like, actually, like, you know, getting a cast together. But, like, they were preparing that, like, all right, starting uh, the the next year, uh, we're going to go to set. And, you know, all this work, you know, we have all the sets uh, designed. We have all the creatures designed uh, and everything. And, like, this is what we're going to do. And then that fickle studio, Nick, rears its 
ugly head. And once again, Sci-Fi Japan gets more into the history of it. But uh, the quick story is that uh, Sony is uh, having some money troubles. Uh, you know, at this point in history, they have some hits, but uh, their batting average is not great. It's not like they're like rolling in dough. Yeah, because it's like when you, Sony is very much on that Paramount level where, um, and even like MGM where it's like, because they think there's like, you can divide it where it's like Disney, Fox, and Warner Brothers have like their history, have their properties they can pull. But when you have studios where like like Paramount doesn't really have its franchise, like Star Trek is its only franchise. That's why they end up trying to do Mission Impossible. MGM is like banking on the Bond films because they keep trying to do things. And Sony really doesn't have its big franchise until they get the Spider-Man rights uh, from MGM in a couple years. So Sony is one of those one of those things where it's like they, especially within the world that's being created of like the '90s blockbuster where the Jurassic parks and you know um, the Terminators, like these big movies, big special effects movies, these huge money makers are coming into being. And when, you know, Disney animation is at its biggest hits ever, it's like you're in a world where it's like box office is truly king at this point. And so not having that bankable franchise is a pretty big deal. Yeah. And especially because Sony does not have, and Sony and TriStar do not have the confidence that Godzilla can be this bankable franchise. You know, it is not like, you know, these other studios where they have, like, you know, Paramount wants to make a little bit of money. They always know, you know, and I, I, hopefully at some point we will go through the Star Trek film. That's another one I want to do. But the basically the way that Paramount treats Star Trek is, like, if we need to make money, Star Trek movie will make money. Like, we, we know it's going to have its audience. We know it will make us it make its money. We can kind of bank on that. Where Sony doesn't have anything like that. And so I think that definitely kind of transitions to, like, where they are right now in the mid '90s, if they don't have that type of money, they don't have that type oh, of franchise. I mean, people have been, but like it was even to the point that people at the studio were even kind of like joking that like it feels like Sony's coming up with excuses not even to like not make movies at all, right? Because it was like right. They, it was also because like Sony is a Sony is like a big company too, which like mm-hmm. like yeah, it's like all these other. Like the movie section is a division yeah. of a large because all these other companies, companies yeah. now are like you know like are divisions of different companies you know like Paramount's like part of Viacom and you know Fox at that point was the only thing now it's part of, all, all these companies were kind of part of or well Fox was part of like News Corp and all that sort of stuff where it's like but Sony was like legitimately like a company like mm-hmm. it had its ties to you know for a couple years before um, this is right before the PlayStation happens mm-hmm. before they have a game division but it's like Sony Music and. And Sony makes TVs and, mm. and technology. So it's like Sony is a much bigger than a film company. It always kind of has been. So they uh, come to production and there's rumblings around the production that Sony, the top brass, is very unhappy with the potential cost of this film. Yeah. And because at this point it's going to well, be it's, over it, $100 with, million. Dollars. With, with DeBond's vision and, and like basically outdoing Jurassic Park, mm. which in and of itself was a miracle that that movie got made the way it did and and as successful as it was because you know they they were you know it was the significant leap in using CG to do 10 times that and to combine yeah. all the same stuff that Jurassic Park was doing with animatronics and puppets but do it on a larger scale you know and and, and do it on a more destructive scale cuz also it's like you know again this is stuff in like Jurassic Park is like for lack of for better or for worse it's like out in open fields and in jungles and and stuff like that. And like here you're still going to be doing it around like cities and towns and 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 sizable environments. Well, not even that. Like they were going to 
like uh, in in some cases just create the, right. the cities using right. Uh, and there, CG. there's a lot of environments in this movie. And then also like think of Jurassic Park. That was a movie that maybe the dinosaurs collectively have like. 12 minutes of screen time. Yeah, so it's like, we, the, the, the stuff is impressive, but like, you know, when you do like the T-Rex chase, it's not like the T-Rex chase takes up like 30 minutes right. of the movie. This like, was a movie where it was like, the creature stuff was like full on, like those were just full on dedicated scenes mm-hmm. uh, to the creatures. Uh, and Elian and Rossio joked, uh, because the goal was like, Sony didn't want to spend more than $100 million on the movie. And it was going to be way more than that. Yeah. And uh, Elian and Rossio have this funny anecdote where, or a story where they're like, um, so they uh an executive t- took a page out of like the script like somewhere in like the third act and he's like this page right here this page is worth 60 million dollars in which ellie and rocio were like flattered by they were like oh we wrote a, a 60 million dollar page <laughs> we like that um so uh this is where the the tension between yeah. uh studio and director um start um debont had uh said that uh sony's issues over the budget in truth were a smokescreen for what he felt the studio really wanted to do uh, with Godzilla. Um, when you ask what the main reason is, they said in the beginning that it was about the money and that our script was too expensive, which is, of course, the biggest, <laughs> as DeBont would say, the biggest bullshit lie ever and had nothing to do with budget. DeBont had felt that he he kept coming up with stories that he just felt like ultimately at the end of the day that the studio just didn't get it. Like yeah. they, 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 um, there were things like, um, I told Sony that we still, they, they wanted to Americanize Godzilla. They yeah. would see little things like, uh, they, and they were forced to pull out all the stops for the executives. Like they brought in like all the maquettes before they were done. Uh, like, you know, to kind of like, this is, this is what we're doing. And, they would even like them, but be like, but they would even give notes. It's like, yeah, but shouldn't it be like more like a T Rex, like things like that, yeah. like. And there was just zero interest into remaining true to the routes. Uh, they kind of had, they were he- very hesitant about like keeping any of the Japanese aspects of the character because they're like, is an American audience even going to get that? Just the ultimate, like I hate to say, but it's the ultimate like studio, yeah, like like no, like horror well, story. When you say that, it makes sense how they got away with changing the character so much in 98 because you know they're doing like i mean that version of godzilla does look like kind of a Mm t-rex so it's like exactly what they oh yeah what they wanted Mm -hmm. to be um so uh the talks between sony and debon continue to go nowhere prompting complaints that the director was being difficult um they would say the studio would say classic yeah he's tough and doesn't want to he doesn't want to do certain things um, and, but by that December, the studio trades were re- reporting rumors that DeBont would be quitting and would be taking on other films, uh, such as Amblin's Twister, which he ultimately did. Um, and this I did not know. He, his name was in the running for Face Off, which I uh, which I did yeah, not know. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, but but yeah, then then the the the, the Wu love affair. So, but ultimately, TriStar because everybody involved in the production wanted to do DeBont's movie. Like, it was really just the, the heads of studio that right. were just like, we can't approve of this. And so they were trying to come up with a compromise, and one of the compromises was, one, get rid of the opposing monster in the film. Uh, because we didn't get into it, but Godzilla fights another monster. We'll talk and, about it more when yeah. we talk about the movie. So he, 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 so he fights another monster, so they were like, well, if you cut out that monster, then you can, you know, th- then we can afford it. 
DeBont's not having it. He's just like, well, now we're just like making these rash decisions to like save money. We're not making any decision based off of like story and anything. Like the whole story hinges on this like he's Other fighting mon- yeah. this monster. And like, especially we- like DeBont's love affair with Godzilla would have been all the movies where he fights monsters. Like for better or for worse, that element is such a distinctive part of the Godzilla character. As much as people will always want to go back, like, we got to go back to 54, that character evolves, so it's like he fights a monster. Mm-hmm. And it's basically consistent throughout almost all of his other appearances, you know, with, with the exceptions of, like, a, you know, a handful here and there. Mm-hmm. But, like, DeBont's... The, the movie that DeBont dreams of, the DeBont, movie that DeBont wanted to make, like, all the way from his Godzilla fandom as a kid, it's like, you got to have the monster fight. Like, that's, like, such a big part of what people love about Godzilla. Mm-hmm. So taking that out, yeah, yeah, he 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 just he he didn't want to have it, but surprisingly, uh, that while they wanted to get rid of the monster, they did uh, the studio did uh, have a note, but it's like, but if you need another monster, why don't you make kind of like a Robin like sidekick for Godzilla, <laughs> maybe like a little Godzilla, like I kid you not, and then like. Like, uh, in uh, Elliot and Rocio, they said at no point that they have a right of draft where that was the case, but they do confirm that that was a discussion being had. And as far as they were concerned, it was like, no, we're, we're not going to do that. Like, <laughs> we're not going to do it. They're Can't like, Can't Lex Luthor have a little dog? <laughs> it sounds exactly, it sounds exactly like that. Um, and then DeBont's like, yeah, I guess I kind of remember that, but. So ultimately, like, it's kind of one of those, like, uh, somewhat anticlimactic stories. It was just these two, they couldn't, they didn't get along in the production and they couldn't come to an agreement. Uh, Sony was very adamant that they weren't going to pay more than $100 million on on this film. Um, and uh, they ultimately uh, signed off. Uh, they, uh, you know, paid DeBont, like, you know, a portion of what he was going to get paid to, like, get him out of his contract to direct the film. And uh, DeBont was... On his way, and, on his way uh, to and, make a movie about Twisters, and unfortunately, they uh, they, uh, and that's kind of where the end of the the production ended. This was a movie that was going to get product uh, produced, and um, uh, ultimately, it did go through another rewrite um, through the the team. It was, um, I believe, it was one of the screenwriters who worked on Alien Three. Uh, did a rewrite on it and actually that rewrite um, maintained a lot it was essentially kind of the same movie but with like some differences and like maybe some uh Elian Rocio did some well no they were they were a little bit involved in it from what I remember but some concessions were made to kind of keep the the movie intact but to like cut back on budget and, mm-hmm. and such um but ultimately then uh you know Emmerich and Devlin come in and you know they the rest they, is history. they 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 do their thing um they but, make the T-Rex but anyway so uh unfortunately uh that movie never got made so we can't talk about a movie that we've seen with you guys today but we can talk about a movie that we have read and uh so if you will uh uh entertain us uh for a minute we will be right back and uh, our quote of the the episode will be a live reading from the script as we talk about what we think of the uh, Elian Rocio draft of Godzilla that was written in 1994. <laughs> right, it wouldn't have come out in 94. Yeah. That's what clear is. Yeah, much. I think it was supposed to start, they, they were aiming for like a 95, like a potentially 96. Yeah, uh, so uh, probably like, shoot, probably 
yeah, most likely would have been like shoot late ninety four, early ninety five for a late ninety five, summer ninety six release. Mm-hmm. All right, so Nick, uh, should we uh, should we get into this? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Interior hospital. Intensive care room. Day. Jill knows time may be short. She hurries her questions. Marty, this creature you are becoming, where did it come from? Civilization. Old. From the stars. Gone now. Earth had three moons then. Huh. Pretty. What was it called? Atlantis? Lumeria? Moo? Suddenly, the thing speaks through Marty. We needed words, needed to warn you to not know what form life would take. Joe gets a look of understanding, even amazement. So they created a virus that would reprogram DNA and transfer RNA? Amazing. They made one of theirs out of ours? Marty's body spasms. On the cardiograph, Marty's heart is a weak flutter. The surgeon turns to Jill. Dr. Llewellyn. We're losing him. Jill leans close to Marty. Marty, what can you tell us? What is Godzilla? We left it in stasis, created from dinosaur genetic template. Alien probe would awaken it. How do we kill it? Godzilla will kill it before it reproduces. No, no, not the beast. How do we kill Godzilla? Can't kill Godzilla. Crash cart, code blue. Nurses, the surgeon move in, try to resuscitate Marty. The monitor stays flatline. Jill rises, stands back, away from the flurry of activity around Marty, stunned by his final words. Nick. Uh, so, Godzilla, 1994. Mid 90s uh, Godzilla. Yeah, mid. mid Not late 90s, 90s Godzilla. Godzilla. Yeah. I'm, um, I don't know how to feel, Nick, because it's one of those things where, like, when something is so far in the past, you just, you just have to let it go. It's just, like, one of those things where it's, like, you know, you, 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 you're happy with what you got and you know maybe you know there was a girl in the past and you know maybe you, you went out for that coffee or you heard about across the street and maybe it could have been maybe it wouldn't have been you you never know but yeah. there's that part of you that wonders what could have been and Nick with this movie I, I, I haven't been able to stop thinking about what could have been because at the end of the day there's many thoughts to be had about this script lots of thoughts many thoughts to be had about ultimately where it ended up what we got with an American film, um, but um, I, I I can tell you just uh, um, the bare bone the bare bones of this this this, this is my Godzilla. <laughs> this is a Godzilla. Well, well, I would have yeah. wanted to, I, I I you know what I here's what I'll say. I feel like we're missing out. I feel like we're missing out. This would definitely would have had an interesting place in Godzilla history. Yeah. Um. So I guess I definitely enjoyed the read. I definitely think there are some really Elliot and Rocio type of things yeah. in there. I do think, I don't think the script is perfect by any means, but it's far more entertaining than anything we got in 98. Like mm-hmm. in terms of it being an actual Godzilla movie, like 98 is entertaining from that kind of bad movie 
sort of bad adaptation perspective. Um, and I've come to joy from that perspective. But this definitely is more in line with it being a Godzilla movie. How I kind of describe what type of Godzilla movie this is, is that this definitely would have fit in within like the middle of the millennium era with what they were doing, where it, you know, kind of a GMK type of thing where it keeps enough familiar things about Godzilla and the Godzilla lore where you're like, okay, I know this is the Godzilla movie and I know this is Godzilla, but they do make like the kind of interesting little alterations to the the origins and and the the general like lore of the character where like you know like kind of that megagirus gmk kind of realm where it's like yeah it's still godzilla but things are a little bit different but we we still know it's godzilla and i think that's what makes it most um enjoyable from kind of the bonzilla podcast perspective where it's like yes there are definitely out there things and weird kind of choices in terms of not not weird for weird, but like, oh, we're, we're doing this thing and it's going to be weird, but we're going to do it. There's definitely those types of choices, but at the end of the day, what's nice about this script is that the character of Godzilla is recognizable as Godzilla. The way that the characters treat Godzilla is recognizable as the way that characters in Godzilla movies treat Godzilla. Yeah, I got to give it credit for just how out there it was going to go and how unapologetically like lore building and 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 not like there were some things that i think could have been streamlined definitely um but i didn't feel like it was just like like i I, it all felt very natural in in a way to me maybe like one or two bit like What ultimately happens uh, to Marty may seem like the most excessive, but but there, I have to admit, there was thought put into why everything happens. Yes, it's definitely like, and again, it kind of takes that general inspiration in a very different way, and it takes an inspiration that we have not seen in any of the other uh, American versions of Godzilla. What I do kind of feel about it is that you can kind of tell though this is like a movie where it's very easy to see why a studio wouldn't get it Mm -hmm. because it is like for a movie that everybody thought well not like all the higher-ups thought was a risk this is the type of movie where it's like you could easily see them just kind of coasting on just like well we're gonna you know very carefully plan this to be like as successful as possible but this is a movie where it's like it's unapologetically like we're doing what we're gonna do we're gonna have aliens. We're gonna have kind of shape shifting. We're gonna we're gonna have all these. We're gonna go all over the place. We're gonna go all over the world, and we're just gonna do it. Oh, the the ultimate thing that kind of was the the thing that showed me like, oh, this is why this didn't get made, was because the and, and why I loved it, and probably the thing I loved most about the script was the entire third act and how the entire third act just had pages dedicated to a detailed fight between Godzilla and our antagonist uh, villain, the Griffin. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- like, I was all on board. Like in the fact that like Elian Rosio, like, you know, detailed, like this is what the fight would have been. And when you think about it, it would have been like, if that, if this got made, it would have been scenes dedicated to the fight between these two monsters, which I would have been on board with. And, and I, and what I will say is that for all for the things I liked and even some of the things that you know I didn't love quite uh, about the script, uh, and even the things I didn't love about the script, I felt like it was a very like first draft of a script, like in a weird way. Yeah, which uh, is kind of interesting because you definitely it's like this is definitely. 
I feel like it is a script that like, I definitely feel like there had been multiple drafts just mm-hmm. just from a writing perspective. You can kind of tell that there's been kind of there's just been kind of alterations. It's just the way that writers work. I do feel that this is a script that could have used one more. Yeah. One well, more streamlining pass to like really put it together. That being said, as a fan, and if I was interested in doing a Godzilla movie, if you gave me this script, I would say at the very least, let's make this movie. Like, yes. you know what I mean? Yes. Like, it's like, like I mean, there's I, I, I things we have like, to massage. I, I, from, an, from an editing perspective, I don't think there's like, you don't need to make like wholesale changes. I mean, there are certain things where it's like definitely like, definitely puts it in the 90s mm-hmm. um, for sure. Um, I do think, I mean, if we were going to talk about it generally. The movie takes, in the script that we read, the movie takes a very, very long time to kind of get started. Mm-hmm. It There's a lot of kind of like, oh, th- are these the characters we're following? Oh, wait, no, are these the characters we're following? Wait, why we're going back to Japan now for this thing? Okay, we're back with this character, but wait, who are these other characters? Okay. There's a lot of like, to get to the point, to get to like the actual drive of the movie, it takes a good while. And that's like the main thing that I would probably want to like re-edit, kind of redo, just streamline the beginning of that movie yeah. to really kind of make it feel just kind of like, let's get to it. It's the biggest problem I think with the script is the is the is is the it, it's almost like a, a product of how ambitious you want to be mm-hmm. and like where you place certain things in the movie because I did have that feeling that I was constantly felt like I was in a stage where the movie hadn't started yet. Yes. I think a lot of cool stuff was happening. Yes. But also because a lot of cool stuff was happening on one side of the story and then I'm like, all right, well, am I following the momentum of this going on in the story, or am I following the momentum of this? So for ultimately, at the end of the at the end of the day, the movie is um, uh, they come across this essentially this Arctic tomb of Godzilla, uh, and uh, it's like I think really the only reference to nuclear like power and you know is like you know there's like this uh it's this the uh, eco um uh like a peace group yeah um and uh one of my favorite jokes that it starts off with at the beginning of it was that he's like ah like uh like a uh nuclear waste from uh the days of the soviets or something and then like one of the characters is russian and he's like i wasn't there <laughs> like, and, Just like, like i had a cold yeah 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 i wasn't there i had a cold like that i thought that was funny um but uh then they go and investigate that and then it leads to uh basically unveiling uh this arctic tomb of godzilla um that ultimately un- unleashes him right and it's like they don't really know what it is they're like what is this it's kind of like a, what is this cave like is this stone like there's like a very confusion it's so kind of for lack of a burn like unearthly it's right. like so different than anything they could have imagined and then ultimately it becomes a story that they realize that they've unleashed this godzilla and there's a mystery because they kind of find out that when they go into this tomb of godzilla there's something uh, ancient and almost organic and primitive about it. Like at one point, they kind of deduce, like, "Wait a minute, this wasn't like he wasn't buried here. It's like some sort of womb or something yes, like yeah. that." Yeah, it's like organic. It's like this is not stone. This is organic material. Right. So we're basically unveiling this mystery that Godzilla is like this ancient creature that was uh, put here somehow. Yeah. So there, there's a whole mystery with that. And then meanwhile, Godzilla is out and about frolicking. Yeah. Uh, but even like, but even like in, well, well, he is, you know, he's doing his, he's doing his Godzilla thing, but I, like at times you don't know why 
yeah um is an issue but anyway so there's that but then on the other side of the story you have a very detailed adventure of an alien probe that uh crash lands on earth and you're basically following all the horrific shenanigans of, of that and then you also have kind of this other investigative team the kind of more like you know like kind of the godzilla expert and his buddy as they try to kind of figure it out so you kind of have like three different things going on and you and you know everything that's going on yeah it's like it's like you have three different things going on eventually like the first two things kind of go together and then the alien probe thing is is on its own for a little bit longer and, and, the, and the issue but, but is the thing is is like I mean, like, I, I kind of want to get more a little bit into details of the story to kind of get more into, like, where that issue actually lies. But I, I feel like there's just, like, there's a lot happening, and it's all kind of happening separately. And so you're all kind of like, okay, like, when are we actually kind of getting this together? When is it all kind of coming together? Now, once it comes together, it does create, like, a very interesting and unique take on Godzilla that definitely would have been entertaining, oh, oh. would have been unique and and again, like you're right, like that third act just goes ham hog on being like, because you can also see with this script, especially knowing now knowing DeBont's fandom of Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Yes, it kind of is like a little bit more of a down the earth version of it, but you can definitely see that Showa era influence like within this script because it definitely takes that Showa era of like, okay, there's aliens, there's kind of the investigation part of the movie, it ends with the big monster brawl, like, you know, which is kind of is also in the Hazy era, but there's that kind of specifically like. It's like a serious Showa film, for lack of a better term. Like a seri- a more serious version, like a serious version that you could make of something what's more on the lines of like a Mecha Godzilla or a, a Destroy All Monsters type of movie. Yeah, I think that, um, and there's two movies to really compare this to, I think. There is the 2014 Legendary Godzilla movie, and strangely enough, uh, the Gamera Hasey reboot um, are the two films, and... Because a lot of this script was like, why do those movies just on a story level work where this one doesn't quite work? Because I agree with you that I loved all the elements of it, but I don't think it quite ultimately like worked as a piece until A, you know what's going on, mm-hmm. and B, like once it kicks into the third act. Because even I was reading it, and then like as it ramps up to like the two monsters, like it's this whole scene describing like like Godzilla roars and like the Griffin is like, you know, roars from across like the, the um, across from the New York city and like the sky is like this. And by that point, like, I'm like, all right, let's do this. Come on. I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, so like I, I liked all of that, but it, it, it did strike me as, but why isn't the, the, the whole piece working where I, I felt that those other films did. Um, and I should say, by the way, because we're talking about it just from a script perspective, we just got to talk about it from the script perspective. Because if this was actually a movie, you would do the shooting, you'd probably have editing, so maybe some of that stuff would have been fixed. But that's what made me think about this, because I was like, but on a script level, like, is this too dissimilar from, like, 2014? Right. Like, because a lot of that is, like, I mean, you could make the argument that it's a lot of, like following like what exactly are you following around and like godzilla kind of shows up like haphazardly and like things like that you could make that argument i wouldn't but like you could make that argument um but like yeah maybe we can kind of like uh like kind of like place it in the story because as we said uh godzilla is awakened and like uh part of like the opening is that we are introduced to um our one of our main characters jill llewellyn who is our ahab of the of the film 
Um, so basically, her whole thing is she is part of this kind of husband and wife science team. Mm-hmm. They both have different like expertises, but they're both called to this Arctic tomb. Long, Basically, long story short, um, when they accidentally awaken Godzilla, because it's really like awake, he, they awaken him early, I believe, uh, from when he's supposed to, the husband ends up dying. And then Jill repurposes herself from being this kind of scientist, you know, that you know helps investigate stuff for the government, for being obsessed with like we need Godzilla's out there somewhere. We need to stop him. Mm-hmm. So she's generally the main character of the film. Yeah. Um. And uh. And so that so it goes on from there. But then it, then it, it but, skips ahead in time. Right. Yeah. So it so the, the, a couple things, and this is where I kind of say like the. Also, this, we should say there are two instances in this movie where the like the like characters that were following their everyday life is interrupted by like the government coming in. Yes, like you know, like that classic yeah. like, and it's like the one of the lines I'm at, is like, like a diner and like oh, right. then a well, helicopter like, comes the, down. The, the line is basically like when they were first there, it's like oh, like they're calling us, we have to investigate this thing. It's like I hate like it's like the whole line is like. Husband's like, I hate the cold. It's like, well, let's stay warm for right now. And then, mm-hmm. like, the helicopter drops out, and Jill's like, now the government decides to be efficient. Like, that <laughs> whole thing. Um, but, but no, it skips like a, it skips a good amount of time. Um, but this is where I kind of have like a, that that start and stop issue because it has like the whole tragic scene where it's like, you know, the the, the Godzilla reawaken like awakens early, and like the tragedy of like losing that life, and and kind of the the, the confusion about very, that whole thing. Very much like 2014. And then it cuts to like a, a Japanese fisherman boat. Yeah. And it's like, well, why are we following this? And then it cuts to like six months later, and now we're following these two other scientists as they go to interview this Japanese guy. And so it's like, well, it feels like the momentum should have been we see Jill in this situation we cut to six months later what's jill doing now mm-hmm. then we can kind of see all the other stuff happening is just around the same time but the, because we get the jill and it's like and even in the script it's like well is who's dead is it jill dead is like who's gonna be the main character oh i here? thought they both died yeah that's when the thing. i read it's it like, yeah i think that's maybe what you're supposed to think but it just kind of confuses you because again you don't have anything at that point you don't and this is like pretty deep into the script this is pretty deep into the first act you don't have anybody to attach yourself to so then when you see these other scientists you see marty and aaron and you're seeing them kind of investigate Godzilla. And so it's like, oh, was that like kind of a cold open? And now these are our main characters. And then you would finally get back to Jill. And you're trying to get her whole thing with the daughter and everything like that. It's like, it's just like the first part of that movie just needed to be condensed, needed to be just kind of focused on Jill so you can get behind her character. And then you can introduce all these other elements. The the weirdest, um, well-intentioned, but I think ultimately mistake just from just kind of like a structure point um is the attack on the japanese village yeah um because th- that was a weird thing where where at the moment i was in into it but then i felt like it it, it doesn't really go anywhere like other than like it's a scene to kind of show godzilla like in his like natural habitat of destroying a japanese civilization yeah like I, that's really what it is and i because i i think it was well-intentioned i i like that it was kind of like showing it was an organic way of um in, in many ways like i do think even though like maybe a lot of like the structure and stuff doesn't work i have to get ellie and rocio uh credit that there was a lot of stuff that made sense yes. like why they did it and i did like conceptually that it was this organic way of 
showing like that Godzilla is like a Japanese legend and like mm-hmm. m- and maybe like that is like the uh culture that has kept this memory of Godzilla after all these years. And I just thought that was kind of like a cool thing to keep. Now the issue was is that they have this section of the opening that spends so long on this one Japanese guy and like, you know, his whole experience with Godzilla. And you think then I'm like, well, is he the main character? Like I almost or is thought, he gonna be involved? Yeah, and I thought that would have been awesome. It's like it's like, all right, you know, she's attacked, but now you have this like like this uh guy who's like his village was destroyed by Godzilla. Um which by the way, I he, here was kind of like my first little flaw in, in, in the in the guy in the thing. This was starting when it was getting a little bit too GMK for me, where I, I think they were leaning a little too much into how ruthless and destructive Godzilla was. Because in the script, he's like eating people, he's like scooping people up, and like you know, yeah, and it, indiscriminately cause it, cause destroying things. I think it just doesn't fit in the sense because eventually the whole thing about Godzilla is that you do learn essentially, kind of, you can kind of see it from the the little script part we read that he was specifically put on the earth to, like, stop, you know, other monsters to basically right. stop this, like, you know, monster alien from from destroying the earth as it had other planets. So the kind of thing where it's like, oh, he's suddenly, like, attacking this town. Now, the thing is, the way that you could have done this, if you wanted to still kind of do something similar to this, is if you basically, like cut to like if you basically cut out the attack you cut to their interview with the man and it's like a little bit more exaggerated than it actually was mm. like, like his memory mm. is like oh like he was eating everybody and stuff like that and there's a little bit more of that where then then it kind of leads into jill's whole like captain ahab we got to kill it and then you eventually find out no this thing is a protector of your planet right like, this is this was put on this earth to protect your planet from an alien invasion. I also wouldn't mind it if they kind of like kept it more in like the Shin Godzilla route where it literally is just kind of like, it's just destructive because it's like a massive creature right, and, and like, like what is it natural. going to do? Yeah. Um, so again, conceptually I have no issue with it. It was just like when it's like going down and like eating people, I'm like, uh, like, like that that's where you kind of like take away some points that like I'm trying right. this is supposed and, and to be again, a hero. And again it just doesn't really fit with the rest yeah. of how Godzilla is presented in this movie. Um but especially cuz you do have you do indeed have a one year time jump. Mm-hmm. So it's basically like Godzilla like appears on that island and then essentially disappears for like a year. Mm-hmm. There's really like no you know sightings of him no proof of like really true proof of his like true existence and what he actually looks like other than what Jill knows, and then also basically the research that our uh, one of our other main characters, Aaron, Aaron Vaught, mm-hmm. um, who's basically like written essentially this book on like legends, and, and Godzilla is a major part of kind of that, like his kind of expertise and his like legendary background. And he also has Marty Akinoshina, I think mm-hmm. the name of his character is, who's basically kind of his like kind of partner in investigative crime mm-hmm. uh, for that. And that's basically kind of like. Then the movie eventually comes into, you know, Jill's kind of going after this monster because it killed her husband and, you know, her daughter, like, you know, changed, completely changed herself. Yeah, and it's she's, like, 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 she's like, she's, she's all she's, punk and, yeah, like, she's all set. She, she, like, hot, like, hot so, wires cars. By the way, can we talk about this really weird section at the beginning of the script where t- they spend way too long talking talk about, about how, how hot the daughter yeah, is? Well, not even how hot. They basically talk about how jailbaity she is. Yeah, no, because, because at one point, like, again, we're kind of jumping over, but. 
So basically, like, after this helicopter lands to, like, get our two scientists, Jill and, um, I forget the husband's name. I can look it up. I have the script right here. Um, but Keith, Keith mm-hmm. is his name. So they get the, they go to get kill Jill and Keith and the daughter at like this point, she's like bright and bubbly. She's like, Oh, like oh, happy. And you know, probably was going to be blonde or something like that. Like, you know, just, just knowing what they were going to go for. And the, the, heli- the, the helicopter pilot, the exchange is, Oh my God. And then he like puts his arms out to his other guys. Like just handcuff me right now. Cause he's like looking right at her. That was a really weird and then, joke. And then the neighbor, so then there's also a joke with the neighbor where, like, the neighbor's like, oh, man, like, I know they work for the government, but this is too much. Like, <laughs> they're always disrupting everything. And then his son is, like, staring at the daughter. Like, it says, like, she's staring at uh, what Tonya. It's like, I don't mind. Yeah. yeah like, it, it's just, like, they very much make, like, a meal out of, like, dude, this woman, this girl, she's, like, 15, and she's as hot as you could possibly imagine. <laughs> uh, it's uh, so kind of weird. Yeah. And then they do the time jump, so she's not even. It's not even like, oh, they time jump and she's of legal age now. Like, no, she's still like sixteen. Yeah, and yeah, then, but you know, this was like in the night, so it was gonna be like one of those where, like, like you're kind of like fifteen and twenty at the same time yeah. in movies like this. But then basically, like, <laughs> or like you're twenty, but you're still in high school. Like, so it's like one of those things where you do the time jump after the dad dies, and so Jill has been so focused, so so focus on we gotta find we gotta kill godzilla that's my only thing in life and so the daughter has gone from this like bright and bubbly like oh my god like this is so great life yeah, is doesn't wonderful. she have like a, a shaved half of her head or something she basically like that? goes to like punk goth yes but yeah. also is very bad at being punk goth right like she's very much like like jill's like you're not this is not you you're so bad at this like you don't even want to go to the mall and it's like right, there's a right. whole joke where it's like you won't even let me go to the mall. You don't even want to go there. Yeah, that's true. But still, the principal. They, they I have to admit, like that, they had some good moments in in the script. I thought, yeah. like they they had some good fa- uh, uh, or uh, daughter mother moments, which is nice because you don't usually get to see that. In a yeah, movie it's like kind this. of it kind of treads that line to being like kind of like kind of eye rolly, like cliche, like my parents don't understand me. Yeah, to kind of having some sweet moments. But it, it La- just, later on in the in the story, I think I it think does. like it starts off like when I when I saw that first, I was very much like oh boy because yeah. I just again just some of the stuff was like very just how Elliot and Rose oh, like, play knew, with humor and you knew like even I said I got to a certain part of the script and I'm like I'm at the scene where it's gonna be like Dad's dead, Mom. Yes, <laughs> get over it. Yes, like it's exactly like, you knew that you was knew coming. that was gonna come. Um, so while all that's going but on, then, yeah, oh sorry, go yeah, ahead. So it's like so the whole thing is like Jill his whole her whole purpose is to kill Godzilla. Then we have Aaron, who's basically like, no, Godzilla is like a legendary creature. Like, if this thing does exist, we need to protect it because it's like a unique creature. And then you also have this other thing going on, which yeah. is what you were talking and, about. And, and so essentially the B-plot is that elsewhere an alien probe hits the, the Earth and uh, basically starts uh, assimilating, like, wildlife. Yes. and. The first thing it does, it like, I mean, to be fair, like all of this sounds, it's crazy because I would have wanted to see all this, but it's also like, would I have wanted to see this in 1994? Yeah, like, this yeah, is yeah. very much a, a 2020 you movie. Yeah. But it's just like, if you're seeing this in like 96 movie, like that's kind of the real thing. And I it, guess we'll like, talk about any that. of this has looked as good as I would have wanted it to, to look, you know, yeah. what I, but so he, so, but basically like the first thing it does, it like, it absorbs some bats and it creates is what they call on the script, some probe bats, mm-hmm. which are basically, it's like kind of like sentry. And basically 
it's a creature that is going around the planet and absorbing like all of the genetic material on the planet to create like a, a new body and that is what this uh, ancient civilization was preparing for. And and there's even hints that it had happened before. This is the only thing kind of like logically that they never really explain is like it's an alien. So is it like and it's like something that conquers the stars in a cool way. But is so it like basically a returning from, thing? From what I understand, it's like this is it's essentially like kind of the thing where it's like these aliens have conquered other worlds. They've marked Earth as like a planet that they want to, you know, take over. So like these other aliens the ones that take over Marty, they kind of go to planets and like set up like, like a defense system to like present. Oh, them. so wait, so the Atlantis, the Atlanteans or whatever that we or that we'll just call them Atlantis or yeah. whatever. They're other. They are aliens. Yes. Oh, I, I completely missed that part. Oh, that makes sense. Yes. that's pretty cool. So they, so they were literally, so they're not, they're, oh, so they're not native to Earth. No. They were going to, from planet to planet. I believe so, Oh, yes. that I makes that's way where, more sense. Yes, yeah. That makes way more sense. Yeah, because I think, like, that's the thing is that they're another, like, kind of alien species. Yeah. That's why Marty, it's like when, when Marty's the alien, it's like Marty slash alien. So, but at a certain point, I was like, does this work? But I don't see why it couldn't work, because this is essentially, like, what, like, let's pick a movie men in black does yes because men in black when you think about it does the same thing like you're following your heroes and meanwhile you're following the bad guy no i i i do think that is very much like like that stuff is is the stuff that could have worked yeah it's just again it's just like getting to that stuff by the way all the stuff with that alien and the pro bats and everything awesome i i thought all that stuff well was and like it's also like right because, out of a horror because movie. you also got to remember too it's like right out of a horror movie and it also lands right around this kind of very rural town mm-hmm. like very much like small town america where you know the, the everyone goes to church everyone like the waitress at the diner is immediately like oh like the plague's coming back and 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 the, and the sheriff's like i don't want to deal with this now i because there's a whole scene dedicated to like it like uh, absorbing like a bobcat at one point, if I remember correct, or a mountain lion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the the best scene is when it attacks the church. Like that yes. that may be one of the one of the best written scenes in the entire script mm-hmm. is like this just this whole scene where it just sets the stage for all these people are in church and then like these pro bats just come crashing through the windows and then creating all sorts of mayhem and mm. it's just written well and it has an amazing plant and payoff that's right up my alley where they're talking to one of the characters who that we see earlier he's kind of a dick um and uh, he keeps smoking and then he, he coughs at one point while he's smoking and he's like hey one of these days th- those are gonna kill you and he's like yeah whatever so then at one point he's trying to hide from like the probe bats and he's trying to cover his mouth but then he involuntarily coughs. Like he has like the, the smokers. smokers. Like yeah. they call it like the smokers like wet hack. Where yeah. It's just like, you know, the, the cough that like an old smoker is definitely going to have. And then, and then he looks up and the bat's right there because he said that smoking was going to kill him. Hey. I love it. Yeah. Um. So I, what did you think about all like the, the, the alien stuff? I thought stuff that, was, that was great. And that's exactly what like, my thing is like, that's what a 90s Godzilla movie needed. I think, I, I think like, Honestly, what's funny is Emmerich's insistence. Well, you go to this is '98. Emmerich's insistence that like like the the, the giant monsters fighting thing was not going to work. And I just felt like if you were going to do Godzilla on an American soil, that you kind of need that. Like I just like because like the thing is, it's like 
you're not gonna make Jurassic Park with Godzilla. You're not gonna have him be like chasing things down alleyways. Like that's just it's not gonna appeal right. with that sort of creature. Like it works for Jurassic Park because you just have that kind of the the knowledge, the general knowledge of dinosaurs and the whole aspect of that movie and, and the really contained space of the park. As big as that park is, again, just kind of the contained space, like they're on an island. That's kind of how it works. I feel like like the natural thing about a Godzilla movie is like, oh, having this kind of enemy creature and like building it up as this villainous creature that Godzilla has to fight. And I think that work that's one of the aspects of that does work very well is kind of creating this kind of horror movie aspect with these with these pro bats and within this kind of the chaos of this small town American town and then kind of building that up to being like this is something this is why Godzilla is here. Because I think the thing about it though in terms of like again the concern about Americanizing the script it's just God giving Godzilla that purpose because I think that what people would worried about and I guess like what kind of maybe an American audience wouldn't grasp is like if Godzilla is just there to be there like in 98 where he's just like okay because like in Jurassic Park again a direct example we know that you know we know that these dinosaurs are there because they've been genetically created and then we have the whole thing where it's like oh like they're reproducing because of the you know meddling of science and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff there's a purpose to everything whereas like 98 the kind of the monster just kind of shows up and it's like, yes, it has like the nuclear thing and all that sort of stuff, but it's just kind of, okay, a monster just shows up and attacks here. It's like, again, the aliens and the kind of Godzilla being a defense, the defensive protecting force of the planet and, and kind of being there to fight this monster gives Godzilla a purpose and it gives you kind of a villain to root against. And I think that kind of really makes like a, a nineties for a nineties Godzilla script. I feel like that's just what the movie needed. Yeah, I, it's interesting that uh, you also mentioned the American, like how you Americanize it, because I, I've often thought about how do you actually do, kind of like when we talked about our man Flint and how that's a perfect like American yeah. counterpart to Bond. Like, how do you do an American counterpart to Godzilla? And like little scenes like putting it in a rural church area and making a horror movie aspect out of that is actually kind of like a neat way of doing that yes. because I, that's such like a you know, for better or for worse, no matter whatever, you know, way you swing on it, um, you know, that is a big staple of, you know, our American society is like, you know, church going and, and everything. And, and like, and like, it's a very distinctive part of America. It's like the rural side of America. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I thought all that was interesting. Um, and then which I actually think that the biggest thing we lost out on in this movie is the Griffin yeah. and, and the monster and the other monsters themselves, because, uh, you know, I I, I, would, I would actually agree. After Destroya, uh, we we've we've definitely the, the franchise has struggled with coming up with a new monster. I mean, like, the and thing this is, monster the, captured I, me I, more. I think the other thing about the post Destroya monsters is that they're all serviceable. There's nothing that really completely stands out, but they're all stuff that kind of like the like 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 we, when you when you have past Destroya. Mm-hmm. Okay, Orga doesn't work. Yeah. Just doesn't work. Orga. Megagirus. Um, Megagirus is fine for that movie. Yeah. I think it's like when I was re-listening that episode, I kind of really remembered that like Megagirus is kind of fine. There's a decent fight at the end, but it, there's kind of a lost potential with that character, um, with that creature. Then you have like, you know, Kaiser Ghidorah, which doesn't even really count. And you have um, the Mutos, which again, not necessarily the the biggest flashiest I like thing, the Mutos, but they're though. but they're but they work very well for the movie yeah. and they do give him a little bit of personality. But you're completely right in that, like the Griffin, it, because the, the Mutos again, 
the thing about them, they work very well. There's a nice personality with the relationship thing that they have and very unique to kind of those characters, but they, they're, it, they aren't flashy characters. They're just, they're not the, they're not Ghidorah or Mothra or anything like that. They just, they kind of work for what 2014 needs to be. But the Griffin and these in this alien probe and all that sort of stuff, it's just so unique. Um, I, I it and, just, and so different to like what else we were seeing around that time that like, that's where you kind of lose what, what you lost out on is like, just another unique Godzilla creature. Well, I, I just, as I was reading it, I was getting that feeling that I hadn't felt since we watched, like, Destroya, or, you know, despite our thoughts about it, even Biolanti, like, at least had, like, that was, like, a, a unique creature. I, I, I just, I, I really got that energy boost and, like, feeling like, oh, this could have been, like, uh, I, I just thought it was effective. I, I, I just, I, I liked everything I was hearing about the creature. I thought it was very ambitious. I thought the lead-up to it was, like, uh, really cool. Um, and um, I, the in the script, uh, the Griffin is described as a planet conquering doomsday beast that has leathery, blood red wings like a bat, the body of a mountain lion, smooth and slick skin, eyes that glow yellow in the darkness, reflect light like a like a cat's eyes, uh, and uh, many snakes, a hydra headed thing squirming where its tongue would be. Uh, which is uh, like kind of like a big uh, like th- that's like it's big like holy crap this is an abomination right uh, is one of those because again um, the whole thing is like it's kind of amalgamizing all these it's yeah. kind of shape shifting all these eight- so at one point this is one of those things that's really cool but it happens way too late and way too subtly in the movie is that it implies like it also has this whole like once it absorbs something it like gets all of its like traits and like everything like yeah, that it's yeah kind of like it just absorbs its spike power. so at one point it's like venom yeah and uh at one point it eats like our antagonistic general character and then it's implied that gets all of his knowledge too and becomes smarter because like so what happens in the movie and and this was kind of neat because I, I think that while Godzilla does take a little bit of a hit in this movie, they do it in a smart way because they basically weaponize the amniotic fluid that kept him asleep for thousands of years. And yeah. I thought that was like, oh, that's a neat smart the, way of doing that. The thing that. about this movie, by the way, before I get too much we we can get more into the Griffin, but one of the things I did appreciate is just the level of kind of making sense of that's what, yeah, of yeah. everything. In terms of like making sense of how you could defeat Godzilla, making sense of how Godzilla actually works. Like, there's a whole scene, because, again, the Aaron character is kind of this Godzilla expert and kind of knows a lot about the legends, but also kind of knows how to practically apply those legends to, like, an actual creature. And so his kind of theory about, like, how the, like, fire breath actually works, where it's like, oh, it's not actually fire, it's actually, like, a burst of radiation. Wh- and, which is accurate to yeah. the, how the but, original But just, like, in the, like, the way you explain it, it's like, it, one, it would just, if you were kind of, kind of, okay, explaining it to an American audience is great, but just making sure within the realm of this version of the world that the characters understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think that, but, yeah, so a Griffin is kind of part of that and then trying to figure out how that works, but it's kind of definitely the most absurd part of the movie, in a sense. Which part? Just like I was gonna go back to the Griffin, I was kind of getting back to like, like him like taking the knowledge and all. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was so trying like, to get back. Yeah. I was trying so, to transition back. So, to so it. he eats the general, displays the same tick, the eye twitch yeah. that the general does, and then knows that oh, that amniotic thing is gonna defeat Godzilla, so I'm gonna use that. 
I think that's cool, but it happens way too late, way too quickly, and it's kind of silly. Yeah, it's kind of like a thing where like that happened a little bit earlier, and that's like the big like okay, maybe it's like right at the beginning, like, end of the second act type of thing, where like now the shit hits the fan type of deal, where it's like they realize, and then he's smart throughout that third act fight type yeah. of stuff. Like that would have been like a real like oh shit like how do we defeat this thing? But you're you're kind of right where it's just kind of like the the kind of the, the weird amalgamation creature thing, and then. You know, and then it kind of gets that a little bit later. It's a cool concept too. It's just kind of the absorbing thing. I think it's kind of like a it's kind of like a traditional kind of sci one of those sci fi tropes where mm-hmm. it's just like you know kind of what the blob is, yeah, and, and and that sort of thing. And even Venom kind of has that aspect of it too, where it's like he he can go on to Eddie Brock and he's like, oh, I know Peter Parker is Spider Man. Yeah, man. I mean, and it's also not like the most novel concept. It's no, like but the same it's like, thing but as like for, but the assimilation I, thing. I will and... say though, but for a Godzilla movie, that's not something we've really seen at all no, before. No, no, I. And it's I definitely agree. a unique foe, and that's what you, what you. I feel like that's really what it's kind of what we kind of need too is just like a unique foe for Godzilla to take on. One of the things we did mention real quick, and we mentioned this in the script portion, is um, un- uh, the unfortunate uh, role of Marty in the uh, yes in the who gets it bad. Yeah, you get, that's one of those things where y- you definitely like. I don't want to say it's excessive, but it would have been one of those like what the fuck moments in a mm-hmm. Godzilla boom, mm-hmm. like because yeah. it, 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 it. And again, it, that's why it kind of fits as a Godzilla movie because like again, where it kind of fits into like. But there's nothing there. There's nothing else in a Godzilla movie like no. this moment. No. So basically, what happens is that they're in the amniotic chamber that Godzilla was kept in, and then he basically gets Prometheus, where he gets like a, uh, which also maybe this is why I I I kind of like. I don't mind it in a story, but I kind of hate it personally. I'm like, man, that guy just, he got like a little drip in his eye and now he's just getting mutated into a thing. I I just feel bad. (laughs) I just, I feel so bad for him. So anyway, so he gets a little drip in his eye and then he just starts just mutating into something like very not human. Like his, like his face is getting contorted, his bones and his organs are getting like just, just all janked up. Um, but I, I, I thought it was a cool mechanic because ultimately he is kind of becoming like a sort of weird, like hybrid human alien, human type. alien that's ultimately a DNA genetic like voicemail. Yes. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of cool. That's kind of a neat concept. Yeah. I, I've never seen it, that concept it, it, before. Because it's like you I think you've seen the kind of concept where it's like, oh, like he's possessed or. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a mental, like he's getting a mental transmission or something like that. But to see like a full transformation to just to deliver a message of like, listen, these other alien dudes, they're bad news. Godzilla's here to help you out. That's what I'm here for. Peace. And and I like it for a couple reasons. Because one, I thought it was just going to be kind of like a Prometheus where it's just going to be like a set piece for a set piece sake where he turns into like a Godzilla monster and like... You know, I, I just thought it, that's what it was going to be. But it ultimately had a purpose for the reason we said. And it, he, because he kind of was like, oh, we didn't know what form you were going to take. So we just like, ho- like, you know, our DNA will like, you know, kind of mutate you and give you the message. Um, but it also kind of keeps the stakes up. It like kind of like shows that everything surrounding this thing is going to have consequence and sacrifice right. and it's well, going to be dire. That's what you, uh, Debonet. Uh, wants with the big stakes it's like that scene that we read for the quote it's essentially like listen like godzilla's here like these are the biggest stakes possible godzilla is here to protect you and he's the only thing that can defeat these aliens we made this thing from dinosaur dna to essentially 
make a protector for you. Wait. And it's just like if you if he fail essentially the feeling you get is like if Godzilla fails, that's it. Like yeah. your your planet is assimilated. Yeah, but I also thought like and that was actually a because as Nick knows, as far as I'm concerned, it only takes one line to make a script very well written. <laughs> but it, but I joke I jest, I jest, but I do actually think it's a badass line when she's like, well, you like Godzilla's going to kill the beast. And then she's like, well, how do we kill Godzilla? And it's like, you can't kill Godzilla. And yeah. I'm like, even as I was reading, I was like, yes, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, maybe secondary to the Griffin. That's the most missed thing from the script is that we could have gotten that in a movie. It's like, that's definitely a trailer line though. It, it really is. Like that's it's definitely like, a trailer. How do we kill it? You can't kill Godzilla. <laughs> yes, especially with the weird, like little alien person. Like it would have been. Yeah, they, then, they, it would have been like from the back. Would have been an over the shoulder. They wouldn't. It would have been an face. alternate take. Yeah, yeah, um, um, yeah. But then, like the kind of the main drive of the movie does become kind of this kind of again because it's kind of kind of you got this like kind of the oddball partnership of Jill, who's absolutely obsessed with with taking down this creature that basically ruined her life, and you've got like her teaming up with. Aaron, who's this character who wants nothing more than to kind of protect things like Godzilla. Um, and there's kind of like the budding relationship there. And then it's basically like Jill coming, you know, just that, that type of thing where it's like Jill coming to the realization that, you know, she's let this thing ruin her life. And, yeah. and, and like, you know, kind of. The, the problem is, is that this guy, other than like some moments, this Godzilla hunt isn't as interesting as it should be. No, because what happens is basically like. It basically comes down to they hunt like a year passes, no signs of Godzilla. Then this alien probe comes in. Okay, all of a sudden Godzilla's back around. Cool, I'm on board. Then they basically get Godzilla, bring him into this containment unit, which yeah. did have a nice plan payoff too, mm-hmm. if you remember. Where at the beginning, because basically at the beginning, one of Jill's main focuses is creating this Godzilla containment unit. Mm-hmm. Where they're like, okay, well, when we capture Godzilla, there's people who like think she's crazy that like, you saw this thing once, maybe we don't even know. You're the only person who survived, so we don't we don't have any other thing. But she's she's remembers how big he is, so he's built this containment unit. But they're like, you know, we only this is a general guess from you. You don't even know how long the tail is. Yeah. And then when they capture Godzilla, they bring him to the containment unit, and they're like, she's like, something's wrong. What's up? It's like, well, you never did figure out how long that tail was, and so you see the tail kind of sticking out yeah. of the containment I unit. Like that. I thought that was like a nice little, good. little gag. But basically, like, Godzilla appears, and they're like, cool, let's go get Godzilla. And then they get Godzilla, and then eventually, like, you know, things happen. Godzilla, like, gets free has to fight the griffin i did kind of like how there wasn't like a well we're gonna let him go it's literally like the griffin makes its big entrance which is also really cool in the script um but he makes his big entrance and godzilla just wakes up yeah. like i thought that i mean they, they did do enough where you could concede i i don't think they neutered godzilla in the script mm-hmm. um i just feel like a lot of that hunting him isn't as interesting as it should be no. i think that that's really what that's really what the problem is, and I think even while again, that- it's just like it's like even when the script's like it gets past that first act and it starts trying to get interesting, it still kind of takes a while because you don't really get that Godzilla moment. You needed that kind of really big kind of like Godzilla set piece, other than the cold open. You kind of needed that like beginning of the second act, like kind of moment where you're like, oh, like we're dealing with something here, which I think is what they were trying to do with the village attack. But I just feel like that wasn't the right tone for it. You kind of need like, 
the big like you needed something with Jill where she really realized- which again, but I kind of like respect that like they gave you like a big Godzilla, a classic Godzilla attack up front. But there, there were just, I've right, already mentioned the details that don't work about it. For it's me. just, but it's just again, it's just like a lot of good ideas. But it's, it's, the thing about a script is you gotta kind of put those ideas together, and I think that's kind of the real issue where it's like this, like that. that I think the con, the very concept of like that Japanese island attack is good. It's just that the tone and the way it's actually executed within the script, yeah. just doesn't fit with everything else. Yeah, and I feel like there's a kind of a little bit of that mishmashing throughout the rest of the movie where I just feel like. One more pass at this script really would have put it in the kind of, kind of yeah, get through it faster, get a little bit more for Godzilla to do. You kind of have a little bit of, you got to, you got to have a pizza pie. Something that does make its way into another Godzilla movie is a set piece with Godzilla at the Golden Gate Bridge, which it I thought, does, which, yeah. I, which I thought was That's funny. another major part. But, but overall, like, what did you think of like Godzilla in the script? Because much like the rest of the script, when it got into the third act, on board, like I'm like, oh shit! That's this where is Godzilla, Godzilla feels most like yeah. Godzilla. I do feel like, de- I mean, it definitely, like I said, it definitely feels like they know what Godzilla is. Yeah, like like the writers, like the Bond. And Did it ter- creep you out when he was like like crawling on the ground like a like a rat like a lizard? Did Did that creep you out? I like that idea, and they actually. They said that they wanted to keep the general form and shape of Godzilla, but they did want to make a creature that was agile enough that it could like you know bob and weave and like do tricks like that but at one point as the griffins chasing godzilla they do say that godzilla is like crawling on all fours like running away and then i'm just like ooh, that's that's a weird image that's cool but like it's it's weird to make the arms a little bit bigger i think they're really really make it make it work um i feel like it really was one of those things where the general concept it feels like like the creative side of it like got what godzilla was Mm -hmm. but it really didn't click until that third act like the the actual fight because it it feels like it it felt like they were kind of holding back felt like you know whether it was like kind of a concern for budget or if it was just kind of like they didn't want to do too much with Godzilla or they didn't know what else to do with it it just felt like they were kind of holding back until that third act fight because again like when they kind of explained like when they actually explained like the radiation breath and kind of theorized like well it's like has like a swell of radiation and and like maybe it's in, internals are different to handle that like they had all that stuff and I'm like oh this is actually like thought into Proton Pro- Godzilla, and like it's still like you got the fire breath, you got the general shape and form, and mm. and the feeling, and again, like I kind of like Godzilla as the protector, as a hero. That's kind of the Godzilla that I've kind of come to prefer more so than anything else. So I kind of having that element and like so for forefront in the script was like aces for me. I mm. like that, but it really just felt like they were just kind of holding back on like really doing much with Godzilla outside of kind of the opening. Then you kind of had that kind of lull throughout the movie, and like. As much as people complain about 2014, what's kind of nice is you do get that Godzilla stuff kind of peppered throughout mm. the film. So, like, when you have, like, the big, you know, this big stuff at the beginning, and then, okay, you have, like, the Hawaii thing, that's a big thing, and then you have kind of the, you see him marching along, and you, and you eventually get to San Francisco. So, you do get that kind of peppering throughout the movie, plus this other monster action. I feel like there's a little bit too much, like... It just feels like it's like if you did 2014, but like the Mutos did most of the action until the third act, because it's really what it is. It's like the Griffin and the Brobats really get a lot more. Yeah, of the... but to be but to be fair, that is kind of 2014. I mean, 20, I guess yeah, 2014 is. I mean, but, but again, I, but, but, but that's but, where but, but, but I, that's where a script and direction yeah, are kind of different. That yeah. and, I, and I do think it's just like again, it's all about execution too. Yeah. Because, because I think how, like how many times do they come in contact with Godzilla before? Because I felt when reading it, 
there was the big Japanese scene, and then I kind of felt like there was maybe one more scene, and then they caught him. Yes, that's exactly what happens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there must be another. Oh wait, I think they like maybe like they they go by him in the ocean at one point. Yeah, something. something like, it's a kind of like mili- yeah, a little bit more like that. Like, but I, but I, I feel I feel like. The feel like again what people complain about what I feel about 2014 is that you do still feel that presence of Godzilla even if the Mutos are really like the ones that like you know the people come in contact with more I feel like you do lose a little bit of that kind of like momentum with Godzilla in the middle of this script I think what would have helped this movie more is if you kind of do it as a late into act 2 or even like an unofficial like four act type movie where it's like you know, the first half of it is a Godzilla 1954 slash Shin Godzilla type movie. where Because you can kind of almost trick the audience into thinking, like, like this is the threat that they have to deal with now. And yeah. convince us that this is the threat. And the movie tries to do it, but I don't think it's yeah. very successful. And there is a point where it just felt like that capture of Godzilla should feel at least like a victory. It should feel like a big moment. Like, we got him. Now, eventually, you know, the movie goes on and then, you know, there's a bigger threat and what have you. But I guess that the biggest issue is that that moment when they catch him doesn't feel like a big moment. It it feels too small. And again, it's also because it's like we're still I feel like it's also just part of the fact that we've been trying to kind of catch up with who the actual main character of this movie is for -hmm. for so much of the beginning. That's a big problem. It's like. And I think it's just like, again, if you're going to do the year gap, which I don't even know if you need to do, but I I feel like you're going to do it with the, with the way the movie is. You do the year gap. You show the death of, you know, everybody except Jill on that expedition. You Then you immediately cut to Jill focusing on getting Godzilla. You just get that momentum. It's just like, again, you just are so kind of trying to weave into, like, where is this movie going that by the time you – you get the you just haven't spent enough time with with Jill to really kind of be on her side. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of the main characters, uh, what do we think of the human characters? I thought it was a solid group of characters. I thought it was a solid cast. Yeah, yeah. and just kind of cast the characters. I can't talk about the cast just yet. Um, but I felt like again, yeah, like it just like with those Godzilla films, you had a, a, a generally. Like maybe not diverse in casting because I'm sure it would have been all white people. Yeah. Uh, maybe a one Japanese person in there, one one Asian person in there, um, to kind of you know get the quota. But you have kind of like different types of people because you have again you have Jill, this kind of jaded scientist. You have like your generals. You have you know you have Aaron, this kind of like legend expert who you know maybe is not used to the kind of the, the being out there, but like has that knowledge. You have kind of you know, the stuff with, with the rural side of things. So you kind of have that kind of like dynamic team that kind of really fits again, those kind of Showa era type of films where like you had just kind of like, okay, this one has a scientist and a reporter. This one just has like, you know, a legend expert and a scientist and they have to work together to kind of figure out this thing. So it definitely fit in that regard. Um, It was really cool to see a a female lead, Um, you know, and and again, it took a while to get there, but to see like uh, when, when Jill was like, oh, Jill was the one, because I swore it was going to be Jill died and then the husband was going to be the one who like doesn't understand his daughter. Like, that's what I kind of thought. So when it was Jill that actually survived that initial Mm -hmm. Arctic Mm -hmm. investigation, I was like, oh, this is kind of different, kind of neat. Not really something we've seen in, in these American Godzilla films because it's, you know, it's all about the dudes as it usually is. So just seeing that was kind of neat. And even like the Aaron character who has a, 
who has a very Elliot and Rocio character description. I don't know if you if no. you remember this. Um, hold on, uh, let me go ahead and talk. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna find the actual thing in the script. I mean, I I really I I think that obviously you can tell like eventually like who they felt like their main character was because they had the strongest voice and and mm-hmm. I think that that was Jill. I think that Jill was like the character that had uh the the strongest presence and the strongest voice in the film. I thought Aaron had a lot of good to do. I felt like it was one of those things where, all right, by the end of the script, when you think he's going to die, I felt a little bit bad. Like, yeah. I'm like, oh, man, I didn't want him to die. Um, I thought the character of, what, what's his name? F- uh, Freely? Freeman? Yeah, or Free- something like, like that. Yeah, he, uh, that's clearly, like, uh, like ultimately would probably have been a comic relief character, you know, because he just kind of, like, tags along, and, you know, that's a great, Right, because he's like, basically, like, kind of a guide. Yeah. Like, a guy that gets involved with the rural stuff and eventually tags along with the rest of the team. And, uh, and, and, uh, the daughter, I, I liked by the end of, of the I think, again, I, I do think for the daughter, um, it started off rough. It started off very, like, oh, boy, mm. 90s, try to be punk, you know, kind of daughter like rebels against the machine mm-hmm. but then by the end i think like they they do enough with the relationship between mother and daughter but i do have aaron's introduction description mm-hmm. so aaron vaught tall graceful eyes watchful behind wire rimmed glasses he looks like a ski instructor yeah, who chucked it all to become a librarian yeah. so basically like they're basically getting away with he's a hot nerd. Yeah, like he's the nerd. It's like, oh, like if 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 you want if you like kind of want Jill and Aaron to get together at the end, like mm-hmm. oh, but like you know she couldn't get together with a nerd. So like, oh man, like yeah, he's like he, he's it's not going to be like a like a like a Matthew Broderick type. No, well I do have I do have some casting. Uh, before I, before you get into that, there is one character thing I I, I did want to say um because you I, I just remembered it because we mentioned the daughter. I actually thought that at moments, and I kind of had alluded to this before, that there were some really good father or not father, uh, daughter mother moments. Um, I the one of the the scenes I just instantly saw was the scene when they capture Godzilla, and then like she's in the room, and then they have this like conversations like, "Oh, this is the thing that killed Dad" or whatever. Yeah. And I, I I don't know what I just kind of I saw that image in my head. Yeah, I can see that scene very um, easily. Um, and uh, I thought that there was some good interplay, but. One of my favorite moments in the entire script that and and it really touched my heart was uh, basically there's a whole scene where and by the way, Elliot Rocio did an excellent job at like really uh, picturing what the chaos and destruction would be. I, I felt there. Um, I I I do think because I also have physically, I I have their. Um, Dead Man's Chess script. Oh, really? I, I have it signed by the cast of Pirates 2. Um, but I have their script physically. I do think their biggest strength as writers is their action description. Because mm. even within those Pirates films, when all the when all the nonsense of the lore and like the character relationships, anything you want to complain about is like there what's always kind of the the thing that you fall back on is the crazy action sequences like the end of pirates 2 when they're on like the mm. thing that's like very descriptive within within the pages of that and i'm sure if you went to read you know the last like hour of of uh at world's end and or even like i'm sure like 
a very fun thing to write for them was like the scene in Pirates 3 where they have to like tip the boat back over oh, to like yeah. get back over. Oh, yeah. But like they're very creative and very good at like the action stuff. They're, yeah. They have a very good mind for that. And this script does show that, especially in that third act when they really get to kind of go all out on it. Mm-hmm. Again, it feels like they're holding back on Godzilla 1, but they do have that freedom. They do kind of get that creative action stuff. Well, just that one bit where they're in the city, and then um, the daughter. What's her? The daughter's name is. I think it's uh, like. Ta- uh, is it Tanya? I or, think it's Tanya. Or, uh, I let me get the script. Yeah. Up. Um. But uh, just the scene where let she. Me get, let me get. I, I I know where the jailbait stuff is. So. <laughs> Tina, Tina, when she's in the New York, when it's like being like de- when it's like kind of being destroyed, uh, that whole bit, like I just think they really captured. Also, a really weird, uh, very much like you know, I don't really have an opinion about it either way. There's a lot of picking on the uh, religious in this movie. Yes. I, I thought like there was maybe right because there's like the for way- me there was like maybe one too many like one person being like ah, the plagues. <laughs> like, well, no, it's that one waitress. There's that one waitress. No, but then remember, there's another one in in like the in in New York. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. yeah there's another one. But so, it's basically like everybody says that. So, uh, but there's a really fun moment where essentially uh, um, Jill has to go into the city uh, to rescue you know her and then there's this whole bit with a pilot right because because the whole thing there. was that like is she eventually like she wants to go live with her aunt in new york because mm-hmm. she like hates her mom and then eventually like i think she's she just sent there because it's like safer but then of course godzilla like yeah. goes to new york so it's like uh, my daughter's in there city. right so she goes there and um there's two there's actually two moments one because like she opens the door and you know uh um, I already forgot her name. What, what, Tina. What, Tina. Tina like has like a gun ready, and then they have this whole conversation, and then there's this moment where she's like, "Where'd you get a gun?" And then she's like, "It's like she's like it's not even loaded or or whatever." Yeah. She's like, "But my favorite part was when they have to get into a car, and they just get into a car, and the mom is just like, all right, hotwire the car.'" <laughs> right. Oh, because because yeah, because um. Not only is she like a goth punk, but she's also like gotten in trouble with the law because at the beginning of the movie, uh, or back after the one year gap, she's like getting in trouble and getting arrested, and like the the officers like, if she keeps doing this, we're gonna have to kick you off the base because she's like working on a military base now. And then the mom's like, I'm not so sure that isn't her plan. Yeah, yeah. And then like that whole thing. But that's like I guess that's just something that we should talk about too. Is that like. At the beginning, like, yeah, they work for the government, but they're very much focused on the scientific aspect. Like, they're very much, like, focused on, like, discoveries, and that's kind of, like, what drives Jill and Keith, like, you know, the husband and wife team, the scientist team, they're driven to that. Mm-hmm. So when we get to the the present, the one year later, like, Jill has basically been living on this military base and, like, focusing her scientific efforts on, like, the military capture of Godzilla. Right. And so that's where, like, Tina's kind of like, we've been on these bases for years, Mom, and I can't even go to the mall. She doesn't even want to go to the mall, though. <laughs> that's true. Uh, but th- that moment, I, that really, I, I thought that was a really touching moment. Like, I, like, because, like, it's just kind of, like, she knows her daughter, and like she's in Jill's, you know, she's not really above that. Like, right, you know, yeah. she's just giving her. So I just love she got in and she's like, hotwire the car. And it's like, because she's like, yeah, I know you know how to hotwire a car. Let's get out of here. And you can tell. Mm-hmm. And there's this moment where you can tell that Jill has that streak in her, too. And I just liked it. And, and, it and, and then Tina's like kind of excited yeah. about it. Um. So anyway, uh, but we also were, in, in her character description, Tina is um, described as 15 and aching to break boundaries. 
Mm. All right. Okay. So, um, moving on. <laughs> hey, she's the same age. In, in the script, she's the same age as uh, BB Doll was. In, she uh, was, but you know it's going to be like a 20-something-year-old playing her. Like, Sure. Yeah. Anyway, casting. Because we did think about casting yeah. uh, for for this uh, movie. Do you, do you want to give me just kind of like your overall uh, general kind yeah, of like Yeah, so I basically cast? mostly thought about it for like um, – for Jill and for uh, Aaron, are they're kind of our two main characters? It's kind of what I mostly thought about it on. Um, for Jill, I mean, the easiest answer for this would be just to kind of get a like Linda Hamilton type, because the thing about that would have been one is that she has experience in these things, in these types of movies. But two, I think that like you could easily imagine like a Linda Hamilton, like from her Terminator experience, like playing both like the warm mother character at the beginning of the movie like the kind of excited and kind of, you know, kind of still kind of, you know, kind of warm family mother, mm. good relationship with everybody. And then that transition to kind of the more hard ass Jill. That's like, we got to capture Godzilla. Mm. The only, the other two that I thought about just in terms of like what was going on and what I would have thought, um, because it's like the 94 is the year that true lies come out. I kind of, kind of had like a Jamie Lee Curtis type of thing. If she was wanting to do a little bit different, um, because she was, you know, she'd done an action movie in True Lies. I feel like maybe this could be her. And then um, Holly Hunter, because this is like right when she won the mm, Oscar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Holly Hunter, same sort of deal as like kind of Linda Hamilton, where you can kind of see like the warm kind of that Southern affection that she has, mm-hmm. like at the beginning of the movie, like the the relationship's good, and then like she can transition into kind of like the character, it's like the hard ass character she played in The Firm uh, with Tom Cruise. Um, so that's kind of where my 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 three my mindset kind of uh, went. If we can go character by character, I I, I can just get my how, who I saw as Jill out of the way. Yeah. Uh, I I I instantly thought like Rene Russo, like some, yeah. somebody yeah, like that. Yeah, that's also would have been a good name for this Um, era. just like I for some reason like she because she's kind of got that like great like maternal quality like qu- just quality to yeah. her, but also kind of like a little bit of that like hard edge. Like mm-hmm. you can see her. You, I just feel like you just look at her and you can see like military scientists like written. Yeah, on I her, can see that. And then she can definitely carry that. It, like so, it, and it was one of those things as I was reading the script. Like that's just who I saw mm-hmm. in, in the part. So, um, I, I, I kind of, uh, but I, I do like all your suggestions. Uh, so, uh, and then with uh, Aaron. Yeah. So I, I, I reread the character descriptions too, and so I very much took that ski instructor that that checked everything the way to be a librarian type of deal so the idea was he's definitely a hottie he's definitely like like a you got a hot bod but he's kind of a nerd so my thought process was well who could have played this part like in 94 right and like where people were in their careers in 94 i could have easily easily seen a brad pitt in this role because this is right huh. at the, right at the beginning of his like kind of stardom career, right when he was starting to do stuff like Interview with the Vampire, where it's like you know kind of like somewhat leading guy, but not like the star of the picture, and just like imagining like kind of that you know like the ski instructors thing with the sun with the glasses, kind of having that sort of edge. You know, people in Hollywood really didn't know what to do with Pitt at that point. This is kind of right you know because Seven wouldn't be for a couple more years which is, I think, where really his, like, leading man skills really develop in that era, so that could have been it. Honestly, also, not that this would have happened, but same sort of deal. I could have easily seen, like, young, pre-Jerry Maguire Tom Cruise take a role like this. Could have easily Hmm. seen this. Okay, all right, Because this is, again, this is Cruise with, like, 
He's done like risky business. He's kind of done the more kind of drama stuff, but he had just done the firm, which again is kind of a more action thriller, kind of like the more action thriller, but like kind of a little bit things. But again, just like with the Tarantino or or like we were talking about Tarantino and like Coen Brothers earlier, it's like there's a distinct like he eventually goes in that Jerry Maguire direction and eventually like eventually makes his way to the action stuff. But I'm sure he was kind of interested in that stuff early on. So mm. I could definitely see again sort of that same kind of like a little bit of a nerdiness behind the kind of hot bod. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, it's interesting where you went with this one because you went really for script description yeah. and and i i think i was thinking more of like who who could i have seen who would have been in a movie like this in 1994 yeah. and and i'm gonna give you the answer and i'm gonna tell you right off the bat that i didn't cheat with this answer and then the further information came after this my instant thought was when i was thinking about like who would have been in a movie like this my thought was like a bill paxton yeah, that's another good choice, and that's probably the more realistic choice. Yeah, because you still probably want like somewhat of a star, and like, and Paxton could still pull off that like he's a hottie underneath all the nerdiness thing. Yeah, uh, especially that era, Paxton, and I'm assuming that that's one of the people that they were gonna be going for. So, not only were they going for him, but Jan Dumont's uh, what some of his favorites for both Jill and uh, Aaron were Bill Paxton and um, Helen Hunt. Helen Hunt is right in that Holly uh, Holly Hunter realm. Very much the same, um, the same type of performance in those. So, oh yeah, I definitely like Helen Hunt was actually another name that I had like kind of like wrapped my head around too. Because again, same sort of era where it's like could have easily done a movie like this. Well, they were uh, so much in Dan Devon's mind that they ended that up, up being as in the Twister. Leads in Twister. <laughs> Wow. Well, because so here's what I did. I was like, well, you know, Bill Paxton kind of seems like the kind of guy that would be in this role. So I looked up the IMDb to see like what were they doing around that time, and I looked it up. It's like, oh, he was doing he did Twister. <laughs> so I did not cheat. I that, I actually so that that's where my that's a, that's mind a good went. Pull. I so I I did have a couple other ones. I did think for uh, Tina. Tina. Um, where and I, I see. I guess what I just say for Tina, just because it was like the young like the younger character. It's one of those things where I could have seen them cast like someone I know, but I also could have seen them like audition somebody and this would have been their big break. Yeah, see, I'm thinking- so my, my thing was, just, I kind of like stayed off that one because it's like, I just didn't think they would cast that like really like star. Yeah. Like they could have, they could have easily. And I'm sure there's, you have good thoughts on it, but I just thought that like, that could have been like, Oh, this was like something that, you know, like, uh, I don't know. Like, this is like not that she would have been too young for this, but I'm like, this is the type of thing where it's like a type of role that like a Jennifer Lawrence type would have auditioned for yes. and probably gotten. Yeah, I I actually like the the things I was thinking of because I was kind of ignoring like the ages and things. I was kind of like thinking, thinking like yeah, yeah. yeah, just like who I could see in a role like this. And I was actually thinking like a young because she was I think like either 23 or 24 at this time. Like a young Christina Applegate would have been like in a role mm-hmm. like this, yeah. like a channeling her married with children role. Uh, if we're going for the actual of age. And we're going at this time period. It probably would have been like a Christina Ricci, <laughs> like who was yeah. like sixteen at the time, I, I believe. Yeah. And uh, it probably would have been uh, uh, something like that. Um, and I was actually thinking of like the Freely character, yeah. Because I was thinking of like who would have been like a comic, who could have pulled off a comic relief like that a- of that time. But, like, but yeah, he's also like part of the action too, right? Because again, it's like the Freely character is like he's like a guide. 
like kind of like a like a tour guide type or like a, 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 a like a hiking guy type of person. Yeah, he's a survivalist. Survivalist. Yeah. yeah, like and he, like he does. I think it's like the thing is like he does like guide stuff to like kind of make money, but yeah. he's like a survivalist by 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 nature. Yeah, and so he kind of has that kind of grittier nature, but like still kind of like like that kind of like because he's so far removed from all this, it's like he has that kind of comedic, you're right, comedic like reactions to all like the craziness happening. Off the, off the top of my head, I see a Woody Harrelson, like some somebody yes. like that. Oh, I guess, yes, that would have been right off of Cheers. So yeah. that would have been I, good. I think he, he could have pulled what off of funny, that. What is funny, so for Marty, I did think about this too. For yeah, Marty was an interesting one because... I actually, what's funny, so I kind of read the script and I, and I, I didn't, the first time I missed kind of the... the the uh, Asian last name, mm-hmm. so I'm sure that would have been a direction they would have gone, but that could have easily changed too because mm-hmm. it's like casting is casting. Yeah, I and it's actually, the 90s and they didn't give a shit about stuff like that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like they could have just like renamed, like oh, like we're gonna cast this guy, so just make him, you know, right. rechange the name a little bit. I actually kind of in my head, and I don't know this would actually fit, but in my head, I actually saw kind of like that younger Matthew Broderick kind of in that role. Um, just because I could have Okay, imagined. all right. I can kind of see but it, it. But it just depends on, like, you need someone who's going to be able to put on, like, the makeup. Because that definitely would have been a makeup job. Yeah. So I think, like, there's there's that. I mean, I don't know. Like, it just has to be, See, like, I kind of see, like, a Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like, kind of, like, somebody who's going to appear, like, very... Because at that point, like, a little bit more nondescript, right. they kind of threw... And again, he was some... Remember, he was in Twister, too. He like, was, you know, yeah. he, he, he yeah. didn't... But I, but I feel like, like, I feel like you could have gone to... Like, I feel like, not that they're on the same level of acting, but, like, I feel like they're kind of similar where they're, like... There, it's a short role. Like, Broderick or Soften would have brought something a little bit different, like, mm-hmm. a little bit different to it. And then they would have to nail... Because you need someone who's going to nail the alien stuff. You're gonna have to see someone who's like, mm-hmm. like, kind of off and distant, and I feel like. And you think Broderick would have nailed it? <laughs> yeah, just because I think like he could have just been like, oh, it's pretty. Yeah, like, I think it's more like you would have just felt bad that yes. this is happening to Matthew Broderick. Yeah. I think it would have been more but, so. But I think that. Hoffman has that energy. Like he could have given that Boogie Nights, like I feel bad for this character, yeah. but also kind of not energy. Yeah, because you know he would have probably been the guy who's like, you know, he seems just kind of like a nondescript, like likable nerd, yeah. and then this awful yeah. things happen to him. And then Michael Ironside would have played the Dick General. <laughs> Michael Ironside would have played the Dick General, but also could have been a very rare villainous. Harrison Ford could have been, but you would have been Harrison Ford. No, 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 Ford. no, no. Would would have been Harrison Ford as Keith at the beginning of the movie because he's literally in like two scenes. Yeah. <laughs> killed off right. I actually do think seriously though that like that I did think about that Keith character and I I kind of saw like a like a William Hurt. Yeah, it's it's just a character because it's one of those things too where it's like you could get another. It's like would they do because you could easily see them doing like the stunt casting thing where it's like kind of the big name but then he gets killed off right away so mm-hmm. you're like oh like who anybody could get killed off but yeah. I could also see like it's the 90s oh so just Brian Cranston <laughs> could it just been Cranston Michael he I mean Malcolm in the middle yeah. <laughs> was not too far from that but what I'm saying uh. is like but I could also it's like it's the 90s I don't know if they gave a much enough of a shit about that side of the thing so they could have also just put in some another bit character actor yeah, yeah. just to kind of like pull off like a one or two scene performance. Yeah. Who would have been Harrison Ford in this movie? Probably some like the sheriff who like oh, is like yes. tired of everything. Yes. Cuz again it's like the sheriff is like there's a sheriff in the small town and again you have this waitress who's like 
this is what the Bible said was going to happen. And then there's the sheriff is like, oh man, like I really don't want to clean this mess up. Right. Like this is this is this is like the worst possible scenario. Um. So, um, what was like your big takeaway from the screen? What, what was like the biggest thing that you liked about it? Because um, I I, I think genuinely... we both have been pretty fair about it. I, I think maybe yeah. I, I gravitated to it a little bit more than you did, but. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think it's like it's just hard with the script because it's like I think this is a solid enough script. Again, one last pass would I think just to shore up the beginning, the first half of the movie, just to kind of continue the momentum because I just feel like it's a script that kind of you keep losing momentum at the first half. Like once things really get kicking into gear, especially in the third act, but even stuff with that once the alien probe stuff starts coming in, and you kind of get like that little bit of interesting stuff with like the horror scenes, I just feel like there's you just need like the shore up the first half of this script. Like if I were to give notes, it's just like the main thing is just kind of streamline the first half, kind of make sure Jill is the focus, still introduce like your other characters, of course, but make sure you keep that focus on Jill because she is your main character and she's your most interesting character in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I genuinely think that this would have been enjoyable on one sense or another yeah now i think i would have loved this movie i think i don't know if it would have been absolutely great but i would have liked this movie i think i'm in that same wheelhouse because you know the type of movies that i enjoy and i feel like this would have been like it's either and i also feel like what i really honestly speaking the thing that i would have been most interested in with this script is seeing the visual style that jandabont would have taken oh yeah yeah because when again, when you look at the movies he's made, like again, he's cine- he's director of photography on Die Hard, which is a underrated, well shot film. Run for Red October, which is not an underrated, well shot film. It's extremely lauded for how those you know underwater stuff and this stuff is shot, and even Speed is just so well put together, just from a visual standpoint. Um, and and really, his his directing in Speed is one of the Speed's one of my all time favorite movies. Mm-hmm. I, I I think I've mentioned that back in the Godzilla Nineties, but but Speed is in my top twenty movies of all time. It's such a fun, absurd, ridiculous, just piece of heart pounding action. Love it for its fit. And one of the best things about that movie is how well uh, Devon directs that movie to keep that action up because mm-hmm. it's a movie about a bus and it's so easy wrong. to imagine a version of that movie that just doesn't work because they're all on the bus but Jabant just gives energy to his characters gives energy to the camera the editing you know everything puts that movie together to make it just from from the moment it starts to the moment it ends heart pounding and I feel like I would have really liked to see if he could have done that with a Godzilla movie because I think it's just a guy has a knack for shooting action, has a knack for kind of grasping those characters and, and kind of that kind of all over the place nature of what those characters can be kind of reeling them in. I just feel like if you had this script with one more pass and you give Devant the chance to make this movie, this could have been an all time classic. I just feel like this version of the script, there's just, and I feel like, again, some of the stuff that's in this script could have been, you know, it's like, again, a movie is a whole picture. It's a whole melting pot. It's not just a script. It's not just a director. It's how a director interprets a script. It's how a script affects a director. It's how the editing kind of fixes the problems in the script. Because there are times, 
and you've made movies. I've made movies. There are times where you shoot a movie, you write it, you shoot it, everything's good, and as soon as you put it together, you realize what the issue is. Mm-hmm. You put together a movie, and you realize, oh, shoot, this needs more exclamation. This is too much. So sometimes that is fixed in the editing room. Sometimes you do kind of, you know, kind of this, that beginning of the movie could have been streamlined in the editing room, for mm-hmm. all I know. We don't know, and we can only base it off the script. But it's just the, I think there was a real opportunity here to make a very interesting mid-90s film. And I think it would have been a film that was definitely remembered and definitely reflected on. And I think um, I, I mean, there's if a, executed well, at the very least, that third act would have been insane. Well, you know, like your suggestion of like, you know, maybe they just kind of like keep like the uh, the Japanese village story as anecdotal. Like, I mean, that could have been something that you decide in the edit. Like, yeah. you, you never know. And I think but I think the thing is. And this is, I mean, we're not going to really have much of an aftermath for this movie as we usually do. No, no, do. no, no. But I do wonder what kind of history this movie would have had. Well, so that's what I was going to ask you. Alternate history, we get this movie instead of uh, Emmerich's 98 film. I think there's two distinct things that happen. One, for better or for worse, this is another big leap in special effects. Mm-hmm. I think this movie, I mean, again, we can't see the execution, but there's a very good chance that this movie is at least on a Jurassic Park level in that sense, where it's like, okay, this is the next big step for, for special effects. I also think that it would just simply, I mean, it could have been easily popular. I can't really, you can't really know because we've learned the movie industry and how audiences react to movies, even back then, there's just sometimes there's just who knows. There's some mystery to it. But I do also feel that this would have really, for better or for worse, it would have really kind of given America just a more definitive definition of Godzilla as a creature that mm-hmm. fights monsters. I think the thing about 98 is that. It's sort of like you either know it's not Godzilla or you're just kind of like, oh, this is Godzilla. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, mm. like people kind of know that, oh, this isn't really a Godzilla movie. There's kind of that aura around it. Whereas I feel this one would have been, for better or for worse, people know this is a Godzilla movie. And that legacy of what Godzilla is in America, I think, would have been really just solidified in what people thought of Godzilla. Because it's like, it's got aliens, it's got big, ridiculous monsters, it's got fighting. It would have just given that definition to Godzilla. I, I think that, if I, if I can piggyback off the history bit real quick, I think at best, let's say at best, and it was great and it was executed great, I think you could have potentially gotten like, some, maybe not in terms of box office, but you could definitely could have gotten like Independence Day type popularity out of this. Mm-hmm. Where in terms of like, whoa, this is like awesome spectacle and like people like would have right. enjoyed it and it would have been one of those like uh, great enjoyable blockbusters of our time. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know what it would have done to the perception of Godzilla. I, I don't think, I think we would be kind of looking at a different perception because the issue with 98 is that it further killed any interest in right. American Godzilla. Right. But it's just like, yeah. it was just like for better, or for worse, no matter if the movie was successful or bad, this just would have, this would have presented a more 
accurate yeah. Godzilla. This would have represented what the Godzilla films are more. So because again, ninety eight kills that interest in Godzilla, but part of it is because like it's not Godzilla at all. Yeah. So as this one, I feel like there's just there would just be a little bit more definitive like. Well, are Americans interested in Godzilla? Because I think like the thing about ninety eight and the question that always existed past ninety eight for especially people in the know is like, well, that movie wasn't Godzilla, it was just Emmerich making a monster movie. Mm. So like if we actually did Godzilla, which we get in like, you know, twenty fourteen you know, there's cause there's still that question of like, but what if we actually did Godzilla? Mm. That's kind of the question that kind of is allowed Godzilla to bring bring it back up now not to say that if this movie like uh, we would definitely would have still at some point gotten a new american godzilla but at least this one i think like, there would have been a little bit more of a an insight of like well what do people actually feel about godzilla mm. are they actually going to come out to see a godzilla movie or are they just confused on what godzilla is right. whereas i feel like 98 just the nature of what it is doesn't give us that that answer well, I, I think that at best, at worst, I think that this would have been something that Twitter is telling you that it's an underrated gem now. Yes. Because I think that online, oh, definitely like Kaiju Twitter right now would be probably telling you right now that like, oh, the 95 Godzilla film is not as bad as you think it would is. Would have made some of the watch during the quarantine watch list. Yeah, yeah, yeah because I think that ultimately, I think... Because especially for Kaiju fans, if it had all of these elements, I think that enough people would be like... Oh, yeah. Oh, this is hitting all the right notes, right? And so I, I, I think I think it would have been a respectable attempt. Yeah, and I think uh, at worst, I, I think. Yeah. Um, and then my final thoughts on the actual script is, and I, I'm gonna be honest with this one. I, I think that I think we missed out on some kind of cool stuff. No, with no. This. I, I, I think, like I said, like I, I, let me let me finish real quick. No. No. Okay, uh, no. Go ahead. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I I think that all things considered, early Ellie and Rocio, I think this is an interesting script i think this we would have maybe with the polishing of some like uh like uh with like the director and everything who clearly had like such a an an adamant vision Mm -hmm. that i think that like they i mean i like what they came up with here as a is a script yeah i think again the, the the general kind of scripting issues that i have aside there's so much potential in this yeah and especially just to see it come to life it would have been really neat and unfortunately that's a project that you know would have to be one of those like all the fans animate this yeah. movie type of project, but uh, I think there's, I think somebody actually made a graphic novelization of this script. That would have been yeah, that would be I cool to really see. Cool. But like I I definitely think that you're exactly right in the sense that this is definitely a movie that would have been enjoyable. I think, but and, but it's not. But I'm, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm not, but I think but I think we we missed out on that chance to see that yeah. enjoyability. And well, I just think for it's their just careers, like careers because I think that. This also, you kind of had alluded to it. I, I think that this would have been, I think we missed out on Jan DeBont maybe like like sinking his teeth into a bigger project. Into a bigger project. Because even think like Twister cool. is like, it definitely kind of checks his like he wants to do something more special effectsy. But at the same time, it's like you're making Twisters. And I feel like he does well enough with that movie. But I just feel like if you really let him sink his teeth into this and really get a chance to shoot a monster movie and a Godzilla movie uh-huh. in like in that kind of energetic style that he has there's maybe a sh- I mean like again like this movie could have bombed and he could have been the end of his career but like you know he didn't do too much after Twister but like I feel like 
there was still a career that he could have had. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, doing a movie like a, like a Godzilla definitely would have been a big boost to, to the potential for Janabot to continue to be a director. And it, it, and it would have just been an interesting attempt and, and kind of an approach to a movie like this that we don't see until now, mm-hmm. where it's like somebody passionate about the source material who would have gone, swung for the fences um and so yeah I, i'm gonna go on the, on board i think we we missed out on something kind of potentially cool with this movie uh, and again it's just like you you're having a guy you have having a set of writers who may not know the material but definitely learn to respect it and learn to kind of follow all these toho rules and you have a director who's a big passion about it as opposed to the guys who do end up coming in who are basically so dismissive of it mm-hmm. and so just like we just want to do whatever the fuck we want that we're going to do that. And it just feels like, you know, you just miss a, you miss a trick. Well, if you want to hear more about that, go and listen to our 98 uh, episode. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, um, and, uh, and you know, what, what, else, uh, what else is there to say? Um, so that is, that's it. That's the unproduced uh, 1994 Godzilla script. Yeah, the aftermath is the entire of our 98 episode. So just go yeah, ahead. That and is, yeah, that that's is basically the only hour of our aftermath. Uh, so a lot of material for this week, but um, also what are, you know, you, you guys, you know, sorry listeners, you probably don't have too much else to do right now. So you might as well just sit back and listen to the, uh, us talk about this for, for a while. I mean, I enjoyed it. I, I thought, I think this was, this was a fun uh, di- diving into it. And uh, like I said before, uh, Go check out Sci-Fi Japan uh, for all the information you can find about, like, because, again, we we only scratched the surface. Believe it or not, we only scratched the surface of all the information about this movie. And there's links to the actual script if you want to, in your own way, read slash watch it and uh, listen to an episode in case you are one of the people who do that uh, on this podcast. And uh, once again, uh, we thank everybody uh, for listening. Uh, and I hope that um, our blabbering has given you a uh, brief respite from yeah. uh, things and going it, on in the world. This was fun. It was a little bit of a different episode, so I hope it, it wasn't too out there, and I hope we, we did a good job with it because it was very different than what we traditionally do on the podcast, so it was uh, a great time all around. All right, and then um, next time uh, we will be uh, headed into April, and we will be on normal scheduling. Uh, Nick, it'll be a Bond episode, yes. and we will be watching Knives Out. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll be taking a look uh, again. So, no, no Bond movie for you know, and it's really funny going back on on our news episode and just seeing how much if things. Only have we knew we were if, so young. We were so naive at that point. <laughs> but yeah, it was still planned to be like, okay, we were going to do it alongside No Time to Die. Obviously, that's not the plan anymore. But I don't I know still, unless they, they drop it on VOD at this that's point. That's not gonna no, happen. It's not. It's not. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine? No. We would just have to do a live commentary for that if that was the case. Yeah. But yeah. no. Yeah. Um, but so we're still gonna be looking at uh, a very fun Craig performance or Craig having fun in a role and kind of dissecting the enigma that is Daniel Craig. Um, <laughs> I like it. Uh, so we're going to be taking a look at uh, Knives Out, which will be uh, one of the more recent films we've seen on this podcast. Yep. All right. Uh, uh, so and no word on our next Godzilla episode? No, not yet. Okay. No, no, no. So be the plan for this one. i got plenty of time to plan it now. No, I understand. Just plug away. Just plug away. All we're right. done. I'm done. You're done. All right. We have BonzillaPod at gmail.com. We have uh, Twitter.com slash Bonzilla007. We have uh, Facebook.com slash Bonzilla007. Like and subscribe on iTunes and 
SoundCloud. Thanks again for listening, everybody. All right, and uh, take care. I think I do want to make one quick correction. I think I might have said that this Spielberg unproduced movie was Dark Skies, which was the like what's a TV show about aliens. It was actually Night Skies was the yeah. name of that script. Dark Sky, I think, is a movie about aliens. Is that like? Yeah, no, wait, it might have been. What was that other alien invasion show? Find out next time on the Bonds of the Podcast. <laughs>